Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan on Courts 96 FM. Good morning, lovely morning out there. Deirdre here with you on the Opinion Line until 12 o'clock today. 1850-715-996 is the number to call. 0833-969696 is the number you can text or WhatsApp. First up this morning, we are looking for your views as parents, um, as other stakeholders in the community, on the school's reopening plan. As somebody pointed out yesterday, we did speak to a lot of teachers on the show yesterday. We have done over the last while, but I suppose they're the ones who have been the most vocal. We actually haven't been contacted by that many parents in relation to the reopening and the um, I suppose the I suppose could you call it a plan? Somebody said to me this morning on Twitter that you couldn't really even call it a plan because they don't know um, so many of the details of it. But I think parents overwhelmingly are probably quite relieved that this is happening. The Cork South Central TD, Donica O'Leary, who's the Sinn Féin spokesperson on education, is on the line. Donica, is this a good plan? I think the significant gaps in it, like, I mean, look, we were looking for a roadmap for a very long period of time. It was something that we've been pushing our for right since April. Uh, and look, I mean, I suppose to make it very clear, we want a full return to school, we want a full and safe return to school, but there's a lot of gaps here that need to be addressed. And I'm a bit disappointed in terms of some of the areas around resourcing, like the number of substitutes that's provided is less than would be needed in an ordinary year uh, at primary level. Mm. So, like, I mean, that's obviously not going to be adequate. And I think it's disappointing. Like, I mean, I think in the midst of, we have the, some of the largest class sizes in Europe, some of the largest class sizes in the developed world, one in every five children goes to, is in a class of over 30. And yet there's been no step to tackle that either in the short term or in the medium to long term. And I think there's a serious lack of ambition there because the reason that reopening schools has become so difficult, that it's been so slow in being tackled, is because we have an education system that's underfunded, understaffed, too many classrooms over full, and too many school buildings that are not fit for purpose. We diagrams there from the Department of Education yesterday talking about classrooms 80 square metres and 60 square metres and what the arrangements would be. I don't think there was a single classroom in my secondary school that was 60 square metres, to be honest. Um, like So there will be it will be particularly difficult for schools that are in older buildings, that have high student numbers. I think that there will be a scandal to try and find additional accommodation, whether that's repurposing halls or corridors or even parish halls or community centres and things like that and they have a little over three weeks to do it I think that's grossly unfair um, and I know people will say well the pandemic was evolving and things like that 
most of the things in this plan we always knew. We always knew we'd need more space. We always knew we'd need more teachers. We always knew we'd need investment in hygiene. So I believe that there's no reason that a plan along this line, perhaps some of the detail could have been uh, kept under review, but I don't believe that there's any good reason that we couldn't have had a plan of this kind when it was first promised in June 12th. Even that would have been tight, but at least it would have been another five or six weeks for schools. I think they're right down to the wire, and it's going to be extremely difficult. I believe the will is there. I believe the desire is there. Uh, but I think the Department of Education and the, and the two ministers uh, have really left schools in the lurch. There's mm-hmm. some other gaps as well, dear. I suppose, when I, like, I don't think that there's enough in terms of special education. Um, they are the children who, I think, found the lockdown and remote learning most difficult in some instances, who fell most behind. I'm concerned that aside from cover for SNAs, there's not a whole lot uh, extra else there. There's not a huge strategy to try and assist people who would have fallen behind. And I believe as well that there needs to be more detail for uh, students who are in a household with a family member who are immunocompromised. Mm, that's coming up a lot actually on my social media this morning. Quite a few people saying they're going to have to continue cocooning because the parent or somebody else in the house has um, some kind of a medical need or some kind of a medical vulnerability. There's a quite a large cohort of people out there in that situation I would say. There certainly is and there is mention of um, children who themselves I suppose are, are, have a low immune system or who are at very high risk even that isn't ideal because, I mean, it talks a lot about remote learning. Like, I think we need to look beyond that because, like, I mean, obviously there will be, it won't be safe to put them in the ordinary class environment. But I'm not sure that it's fair either to suggest that for an extended period of time that they're through no fault of their own, through no choice, really, uh, you know, the lack of socialisation involved in that. So I think we I need to what look would at be, that. What would be the ideal option then in that scenario? Like, is there another way? Well, I think that we could look at some kind of arrangements where maybe there would be enhanced social distancing and hygiene situations. Or then are you putting a child like in a room on their own in the school? Like, it's very, to be fair to the department, um, this is one of those things that is in many ways sort of intractable. I don't see how they, I, I don't see how they would fix that without isolating children. Well, like, I mean, I think in the short term, obviously, there has to be, like, I mean, it looks like there will be an element of that kind of remote learning. But I think in the medium to long run, because we're not looking at this pandemic going away anywhere soon, I think we have to figure out ways that they get more. But the point I was coming to is that there is some reference to children who themselves are high risk, Mm. but there is pretty much nothing where there is a family member. And in many instances, the considerations will be very, very similar. Uh, And I don't think that there's enough there, to be honest. And the other thing is, like, look, there are children you know, in other situations who would have just become disengaged from education, who are at serious risk of falling away from education altogether at second level at 16 or 17. Is there any measures in terms of school completion or in terms of homeschool liaison to ensure that they finish their education, to ensure that they remain engaged with education? I'm not sure that there is. Mm. But the biggest problem really is we are down to the wire. Is the 28th of July, schools are opening in three or four weeks. Uh, and so much has to be done. And I think really it's put schools in a really unfair position. I know that they will do everything they can to rise to that, but I think it's very unfair. And we are paying for our lack of investment over many years. Yeah. We have to start. We have a motion before the doll tonight on pupil-teacher ratios. We have to put an end to the days of the overcrowded classrooms. That should be starting now. I'm really disappointed to see that there's no reference to starting that job of work right now.
Okay, Donick, I know you have another appointment this morning, but thank you for that. Um, I think people are quite concerned that there's no mention of masks in the plan either. Um, there's a suggestion in the document that the virus isn't airborne. And I don't know, but um, look, I'm not, I'm not an expert, but I'm following the same news everybody else is following. But hasn't that kind of been disproven, that there is some kind of um, an airborne risk? That's why we are all being advised to wear masks. But, you know, I suppose people can wear them if they wish, but... It, wouldn't it make more sense to mandate masks for some people or would it just render a school environment kind of pointless like if you can't see people's expressions or you can't see what's happening with them um, loads of parents come back to me on this on Twitter I'd love to hear from you at home 0833969696 Mairead says it's very difficult for all involved but if children don't return many parents cannot work if they return part days etc massive childcare need if parents work with likely no money to pay for it and supply of childcare limited huge economic impact but masks should be worn Deirdre on Twitter says I have mixed feelings I know my two have been missing the social aspect of school but I am concerned about the lack of social distancing and PPE. My eldest has asked Matt, will she have to stay at home? Who will teach her? How can I send her little sister into a class of 30 and risk bringing infection home? Um... Derek says it's grand probably a lot safer than bringing them to the supermarket etc so bring it on no worries my end Deirdre a different Deirdre says I suppose I'm cautiously optimistic it'll be chaotic but our school is generally on top of things so I have faith in them Um, somebody else says I'm disappointed there are no provisions for remote learning to continue for kids with at-risk parents siblings or parents should continue to be an option if it was working before yeah I suppose that I mean you'd wonder could they do some kind of a centralised remote learning for, for kids Um you know, in different locations who are who are immunocompromised who have to be taught from home. Um, you know, if you had like X amount of teachers in the country doing that um, purely catering for kids who have to stay at home you'd wonder if that's something that would be feasible but I suppose they need that existing relationship and that knowledge of the teacher and things as well. It's like a lot of people as adults go back and do college courses on remote learning and that can be difficult enough but I suppose it's hard as a child if you don't have that kind of relationship already. Very interested in knowing what you think. Are you going to send your kids back? Is there a reason you can't? Is there a reason you don't feel comfortable doing it? 1850 Rachel is a parent. She's been on the show about this when the school's first closed and she is going to give us her thoughts in just a moment. Stay tuned for that. 1850 This is Court's Gold Imro Award-winning talk show. The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. Call us now. 1850-715-996. On Court's 96 FM. Now, Rachel, you spoke to us. We've spoken to us a couple of times during the pandemic, but I remember mm-hmm. the first time you did, people were very taken by your thoughts on um, the isolation period, I suppose, and yeah. on the, the lockdown and all of that. And we've come through that. We're on the other side of it. We're looking at resuming some type of normality. And I suppose yeah. the most normal thing that can come back is the schools. How do you feel after seeing the plan? Um, okay, yes the schools have to reopen we do have to move forward and we do have to be brave in how we do it so I think I read through the plan um, I think it's as detailed as you can be with an unpredictable situation and I think we have to kind of give the government a little bit of kind of um, leeway with that so I think that they're doing their best mm-hmm. but the one thing that's missing from the plan which is a little bit of detail parents again so I think they're very focused on the school as an environment for children, they're very focused on as a work environment for teachers. And I read through the procedures, I read through from go on. And for example, one of the procedures is if your child does turn up at school and they have a cold or something like that, 
you walk this child down to the new isolation room um, and the child is two metres from the, the teacher. They, they sit in the isolation room until the parent is called. If they can wear a mask, they should wear a mask in that in that period, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, well, that's, that's logical. It's a good plan. But what's missing from the plan and what's missing from the guidelines when the crash is reopened is what do parents, employers and teachers then do? You know, like what happens if a child has a cough, a fever, a cold or a sore throat at home? And the part that's missing is the amount of time that a child has to be taken out of school for. So like if your child turns up for cold and you get a phone call from school or if the night before they have a fever, last year, if my kids had a cough, a cold, a sore throat or fever, I'd say, right, you know what, they're not going to school today. I'm going to see how they go. Mm. So I'd give them like a day at home. And sometimes, yeah. you know, then that rules out the kind of mommy, I'm sick stuff, you know. Um, but the second thing is, um, do you, can you hear me there? I can, the yeah. line's got a bit weird, yeah. The second thing is I might then watch them for two or three days mm-hmm. if the fever went that day with a bit of calpol and they were grand. By day two or three, I'd be thinking, right, are they ready to go back to school? You know? Um, the most you'd really kind of have it out for would be four days. Mm. But the isolation period is because of COVID. Yeah. So <laughs> what happens? And that's not being kind of tackled consciously yeah. by the government. And so, like, what's happening is, is the, the social responsibility, the onus of responsibility is on the parents and indirectly the employers. Mm. So at the moment, as a parent, because you can't ask grandparents, friends, crashes, schools, anyone to mind your child if they're sick with respiratory symptoms. So <clears throat> it has to be the parent's home. Yeah. So there has to be guidelines. And the reason there has to be is with, for example, um, not, not all employers pay sick leave. Yeah. Okay. So if a parent then says, right, my child has got symptoms and you know and I know that sore throat fevers will be very common. Mm-hmm. Then what happens to the parents? So they're at home for the two-week isolation period, theoretically. Will they get paid by social welfare to be acting socially responsible um, or or they just have to go back into the normal system? Mm. You don't get paid straight away. So like I think the first, I'm not sure and I'll have to kind of find out the details about this, but I do know you don't get paid for the first few days of sick leave. And so there's the money side of it. Then you've got the kind of the employer's consideration and kindness. Yes, this is the third time I've asked you since September. But again, my child has a cough or cold. What do you want me to do? So again, you're talking about a lot of conversations between parents and their employers mm. if they have to go into work and can't work remotely. Yeah. And there have to be protections for employers. There have to be protections for employees. And that's what parents are. So, and then the other side of it is, is <laughs> like I've had the test done twice. Um, it's invasive. It's, it's not great. It's worse yeah. than a blood test. Yeah. So, like, if you were to kind of scale this, is it the worst thing I've ever had done? No, it's not. And the newer test, which I had done a couple of weeks ago, because I'm asthmatic, so I'm going to be tested a lot, um, is smaller. It doesn't take very long. But it, it, it's, on the scale of things, I would put this higher than a blood test. Okay, so, a woman child, to woman, if you've had a smear test, it's probably about the same level of discomfort as a smear test, exactly. isn't it? Yeah. It's like a smear test in your nose. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> And it goes back your throat. So it doesn't just go into the kind of outer bit of your inner nose. It go, it actually goes up your nose and back to your throat. Mm. So for any parent listening um, with your child, you know straight away whether or not they can handle that or not. Okay. Mm. So you have two choices as a parent. Um, if you want to get tested, it's very fast. You'll get your test the next day. 
your results within two or three days. So you're looking at four days, yeah, max. It's very good at the moment. So do you either think, right, my child can have the test to be back to school in four days when I get a negative result, mm. or your doctor will say you have to isolate for two weeks. So depending on your child's capacity, my kid, one child can handle that test and is a little trooper. Mm. The other one can't even, like, you know, it's ridiculous what we have to do to get him to do anything with the doctor. Yeah. So depending on your child's nature, depending on what your child's capable of, you know as a parent whether or not you'll be taking the two weeks isolation or forcing a child to get a test mm. done. So do you see all the different parameters that haven't been looked yeah, at? Yeah, and like that thing about the work, I suppose, that was the thing that really jumped out at me all along was that yeah. if you have to take, like, we, it's funny, I remember I was saying this to, to Nicole who works with us here is a bit younger than me and hasn't mm. hit the, the maternity leave stage of life yet. But I remember when I came back from maternity leave and you know when kids are small in crashes and they get sick? all the time right. like every yeah. week somebody yeah. has to go and collect them early like one day every two weeks if not more often than that That's right. and yeah. um, and like if, you're, if you have a flexible job and all that brilliant even in the most flexible job I would imagine a lot of employers get a bit sick of it after a while of course um, they do. But with this, like what 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 really what really kind of I I had known it, but I didn't uh, I suppose get it until I experienced it myself. Was that if you have to be off to mind a sick child, there is no provision for that. You are not entitled to sick pay from your employer unless you are sick, That's and right, you're not yeah. entitled to sick pay from the social welfare unless you are sick. Um, right. Obviously, carers allowance you have to be you know years and months or months and yeah, years probably and before you're allowed to claim that. That's a long haul. There is no provision in the system for parents who have to stay at home with sick children and no, as you're saying here if every time the child gets a sniffle your responsibility to the other people in that school and to the other parents and to society is to make sure that the child doesn't go to school but if you can't pay your rent because you don't take the child to school because you're not getting any pay yeah people are not going to do it and like in and really practical terms do you like you know i lost my job through covid so, like, I'm in the process at the moment of, of applying for work and I'm, like, left, right and centre looking for jobs. And in the back of my mind the whole time, I'm like, so I start a new time job in Cork, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and do I now say to employers, I have children at school? You know, it, it's like I've actually come away in my search, and this is how much it's affecting the way I'm thinking of things. I'm like, there is no point in applying for a job in an office because you are going to be one of the most unreliable employees ever. And I don't have to be that. Mm. So I'm focusing my search on remote work um, and actually in other countries, you know. Yeah. I've changed the way I'm thinking to accommodate what I know is going to be my responsibility. And, like, it, I, I, again, I'm not saying the government has a crystal ball. And a lot of people are impatient at the moment with the government. They are making some silly mistakes. But in general, a lot of this is crystal ball work, isn't it? it mm. It's trying to predict something that's unpredictable. But when doing that, you just have to put in structure to kind of support the society in a way that, like the details that we're talking about, Mm -hmm. you have to think about money. You have to think about parents as as well as parents. And the children have to go back to school, Dee. They do. Like, my my kids need it. And I'm sure so many parents out there can feel that. Mm. It's not the academic learning. It isn't. It's not just about ticking off boxes. They need it socially. They need the normality. I'm really glad the schools are reopening. Mm. I understand it's not a perfect circumstance. Yes, I'm a little bit nervous. You know, it's like, yes, kids are usually fine with COVID, but there's that 1% chance. But, you know, this is life as well. Life's not predictable. But I do think economically and, and the onus of responsibility is falling back on parents and employers 
there's going to be a lot of tricky conversations, mm. a lot of having to kind of rely on the goodness of employers um, and a lot of really stressed out parents who are dealing with very standard childhood illnesses mm. because the majority are not going to be COVID. The vast majority are going to be sniffles, colds. And when they go back to school, for the first month of back to school, they get everything, you know? Yeah. And especially now that they've Between had... Between September period, and December is a write-off, like... It is. And also, no one's immune system drop. So we've been in lockdown. So we're actually not as fit as we were last year. So we, we haven't been around each other. So our immunity is lower. Mm. So we're going to be more prone to these things. So, like, I think that as they're doing their plan, great. Think about PPE gear. Think about teachers. Think about children in the school environment. But remember that you've, you've missed out on one key bit. The two-week isolation period mm. has to be given provisions and strict legal protections for the parents and the employers who are going to have to be the ones to circumnavigate it. Yeah. And that's what's missing. So yeah. yes to opening, yes to moving forward. You know, I have this, this new phrase, D, that I say in my head, move forward with strength and courage because that's all we can do right now. But you have to put in legal protections in the social welfare system for parents who once they've rung the doctor and the doctor says, yes, your child has to isolate for two weeks. There has to be money there because otherwise you're looking at parents who could get, I mean, like, we don't know. Like, mm-hmm. my kids might have one cold this year. It's very unlikely, but they might. Yeah. Um, but you can't predict. Well, the so one thing I me, would say is that I think yeah. they, we had a doctor on the other day saying that actually there's a lot less flus yeah. and things predicted because of social distancing and because of all the sanitising yeah. and everything. So hopefully we will protect ourselves from a lot of those other things. Bridget, I think that's a really, what was it, move, move forward with strength and courage. Yeah, I think so. That's a very good way I just think it. that we have to keep doing that. And I say it in my head, do you want to get nervous? Mm. <laughs> <laughs> like when I was in a shop in a queue and I had my mask on and no one else had masks on and I was sitting there kind of going, yeah. just keep moving forward. Cause yeah, you have to. I was in two shops yesterday and I was the only person wearing a mask. Like have yeah. people not got the memo and that it's mandatory now? Like, No, not. Well, some shops, yes. In yeah. some areas, yes. But you know, you have these moments, these kind of stomach wobbles, don't you? Yeah. Where you're kind of like, oh God, oh God, what am I doing? What am I doing? <laughs> but the truth is, we're going to be living with it for a while. Yeah. So we have to be brave. Yeah. But there, there does genuinely have to be more detail in any plan they put forward that protects parents and employers because at the moment, it's all very grey. And that's fine. Be grey about, about not being able to really, really create a school system that can stop it. Mm. But then you have to, have to have protections in place to help the parents be responsible. Yeah. Okay, Rachel, That's thanks. It. Very good points and good luck on the job hunt. Thank um, you very much, Dean. I'm, sh- I'm sure you'll find something that'll, sure that'll remote, match your talents. Uh, remote work. Thanks for really way take. forward. Thank you. It's, it's, so there's there's Rachel. I mean, I think a lot of what she's saying is really logical. Um, a texter, or sorry, a caller says, well, they all shut up with their moaning. It's like an agony ant show. We know it's going to be difficult. We just have to get on with it. I don't think anyone's moaning, caller. I do understand where you're coming from. But I don't think anyone's moaning. I think... Um, the issues they both raised, look, as I said earlier, I actually feel a bit sorry for the department here because there's no right answers. Everything is going to bear risks. And the thing is, a lot of us are happy to take risks on our own behalf. But you can't put your children into a situation you're not comfortable with, um, you know, and, and have them at risk. Or you can't put them into a situation where they might infect somebody at home who is vulnerable. And, you know, like I say, we all accept a level of risk in our daily lives. We cross the road and we get into cars and we do all these things. But most of us are very uncomfortable taking that risk on behalf of somebody else. Um 
Mary says, is there anyone talking about vulnerable grandparents who have to look after kids after school? Yeah, you see, there you go, Mary. That's a whole other angle that we haven't got to. If you want to have a word on air, 1850-715-996. Kate says, I have grandkids in Denmark and Sweden and they are in school and everything runs like crock clockwork. Look at other countries and see what they are doing. See, Kate, and I'll bring you back to what Dunica said there, they already don't have overcrowded classrooms and schools with outdoor toilets, although there's not too many of them left. Um, and, you know, limited hot water in schools and kids up to 30 or 40 kids in some class, in classes. They have very small pupil-teacher ratios. They have well-spaced-out schools. Like, I saw pictures of other um, countries where they went back and the kids already had, you know, single desks spaced out in a classroom. Sure, I've... My secondary school was a modern secondary school and we had it a bit in secondary, but my primary school, I mean, we were all on top of each other. Um, John says, that's the wrong question. My question was, are you comfortable sending your kids back to school and will you be sending them? John says, it should be, does the roadmap make it safe for kids to go back to school? Obviously, everyone wants their kids back in school. Well, what everyone wants, what everyone is going to do might be different, John, because as you say, does it make it safe? Nothing's going to be 100% safe. And that's the thing, like we make judgments on our own behalf and on our kids' behalf every day, but is this going to be just too risky for some people? Alex says, when schools use community centres, etc. for space, extra space, what happens if a pupil or teacher gets COVID? Do all the services work in the building have to isolate? Who cleans after the classes and shared bathrooms, etc.? Yeah, great question. Mag says, before the shutdown in March, my kids' school were already really on top of things, i.e. sanitising stations, one-way systems, so I have every confidence in their ability to manage on return in a few weeks' time. Yeah, I mean, it struck me this morning listening to, there was a lady on, on RTE from um, one of the national teachers, um, there seem to be a few different ones now, principals, organisations, and she was just outlining all of the things they have to do in the next month. Like, some schools, they have to build extra bathrooms, they have to hire extra teachers, they have to find a community hall nearby, all of those things in four weeks on top of all of the ordinary back to school things which do take up most of August in most schools um, and I just really felt sorry for principals um, I, I thought it was quite interesting um, people might have seen both the UCC president and the UL president left during the pandemic they both resigned and um, the UL president said it was pandemic related the UCC president didn't but it actually struck me that both of them looked at the body of work that was ahead and went oh my god and decided that maybe they just weren't up for that and I do think there's going to be an awful lot of people and again this will apply to people in offices and in other jobs as well I'm sure but who will look at that work that has to be done and just decide that they are not not able to do that because we're all making the judgments they're the ones making these decisions on behalf of the kids what if they get it wrong um, Lorraine says my son has a cold throughout the whole winter and has always suffered with chest infections I'm scared to death of them going back to school he hasn't a great immune system was the only one that picked up the swine flu in school when he was younger that's scary Lorraine and I'd hate to be in that situation that's very very difficult um, if you have any other thoughts on this 1850-715-996-083-396-96-96 getting loads and loads of texts and calls in in relation to schools we will come back to that a bit later in the show if you want to have a word on air about that 083 396 let us know what your thoughts are and we'll ring you back if we can there's a new um, report brought out the Cork Chamber has uh, has brought out this report that says um, the quality of life infrastructure is going to define the future of Cork business this is a thing I think that's come up a lot in the pandemic is people I think 
a lot of people really enjoyed the lockdown and really enjoyed not having to commute, really enjoyed kind of getting to spend more time in their own homes and in their own neighbourhoods, particularly people who spend a lot of time in their cars maybe. Um, in the press release that they've sent out about this report, about a thousand people engaged in a series of sectoral think tanks and also an open survey. So Thomas McHugh from Cork Chamber is on the line in relation to this. Thomas, what kind of things did the survey reveal that people are prioritising? Well, I, uh, I suppose we, as you say, about a thousand people engaged with the survey and it was very much led by our board and by our Sustainable Cork Programme team lead, Michelle O'Sullivan. And what, what, the, what the report has really shown is that, I suppose, despite the context of, I suppose, the acute business needs to keep cash flow going in the day-to-day, to, to keep people employed and, and, and to deal with the, the today of the pandemic, that the really, once you get talking to the business community in Cork, regardless of what sector they're in, that they are absolutely resolutely focused on the future of Cork, what that looks like, how we can, I suppose, claw some positives from the current pandemic and make sure that as we do recover, um, that we are creating a more resilient economy and that we're creating a better place to live. So the types of things that uh, kept coming up over and over again was uh, better public and sustainable transport. Um, the faster rollout of the national broadband plan has been has been very much prioritised because obviously people are engaging now with mm. you know more and more Zoom calls, more and more webinars, and I suppose the... the, the uh, the, the quality of the current services has become more acutely people are aware of it. Uh, people living in the heart of city and towns, flexible working, uh, ecology keeps coming up over and over again. So talking about planting indigenous trees, uh, wildflower verges, cutting down on you know things like uh, you know pesticides and chemicals and things like that. Yeah, in, it's in funny. If, a few years yeah, ago, yeah. when we used to talk about that stuff on the show, people were like, "Oh, hippies!" I know, yeah. like my roundup. And these days, we get calls from all sorts of people. Every time anyone from anywhere goes out spraying, we get outraged calls about the spraying that's going on. I think. Do you think? I mean, I don't know. Have you done research like this before, Thomas, or is this? Um, because I'd love to be able to see how much people's opinions on this stuff have changed in the last few years. Yeah, I think I think there's been a, a steady a steady shift. I think anyone who's been, I suppose, yeah, uh, clued in or watching things like our quarterly economic trend surveys and things like this will see, you know, over a good number of years now, things like public transport, sustainable mobility, um, that that's been very 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 constant, you know, in terms of the support for that. And obviously, it takes a bit of time to kind of you know turn the ship around in terms of actually delivery on the ground, but. I suppose what we're seeking now is for all of that to be accelerated. But I think I think in terms of things like uh, things that you say, like the planting, the wildfires, that kind of softer things that mm. people might have kind of rolled their eyes at, um, had you said them a couple of years ago, um, that there's actually that's just something that's like wide, widely supported now. That's just yeah. you know that's just how it has to be. So um, and you're even looking at things like renewable energy. Um, another thing that came out very very strongly was equality. You know, uh, gender, race, and background, and you know, not only being like pro-diversity, but also being anti-racist, which is obviously very important um, in terms of a progression of the diversity discussion. Um, and then childcare obviously came up uh, again. It's very much tied to that flexible working piece. I, I suppose the, the the nature of how it's currently provided was is something that has, you know, been, a, you know, I mean, you've just been discussing uh, back to school there. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it needs no introduction. And then, um, you know, I suppose, but in the round, all of this is quality of life, you know, so it's all about quality of life infrastructure, and really, why is that important? Well, it's important because if we want to attract um, the brightest people from around the world or even the brightest people from around Ireland mm. um, to come and live in Cork and bring us their, their, the sharpest brains in the business to, 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 to give our economy that resilience, then we need to have a really nice offer because first and foremost, if you've got the talents that are most sought after, you can kind of be globally mobile nowadays and you can pick, you know, where, where will I live? What will give me the best experience in my life? And that's very much what Cork I suppose uh, traditionally has has had a very strong quality of life, but as we grow to a bigger scale, 
you know, there's every opportunity for that quality of life to diminish as there's more and more people, you know, and, and that's what we have to keep kind of a laser sharp focus on. And then the other piece around that is just, you know, what's our reputation in international context? You know, we're, we're a, you know, green progressive country, but, you know, are we actually green in terms of how we produce energy? You know, are we actually green in terms of how we, you know, move around the city region? So, so this is kind of the, 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 the nature of how the discussion has gone. In some respects, I think the, the content you know, in terms of um, the perspective that we hear day in, day out wasn't surprising, but I think what was surprising was how how much further they pushed the boundary across every issue. Mm. And the other thing that was maybe massively surprising when you're, when you're dealing with um, multiple sectors was how, of course, you know, the first topic of discussion is, you know, the, the, the rates, you know, the, the grants, the waivers, the wage subsidy schemes, the, you know, all of the different packages that are needed for the here and now. Mm. Um, but, but very, very quickly across every single sector grouping, um, each of which was chaired by a member of our board, I should say, um, the conversation moved to the future. What can we do better? How can we differentiate? You know, how can Cork excel? Um, and how can we make sure that our economy and our society is more resilient so that if we encounter shocks like this pandemic, mm. um, as, we, as we continue to encounter climate change, that in the best way possible, Cork is, uh, is placed to, to excel. Okay. And I mean, what comes out of this? So I, I, I'm looking at the report here and, you know, it's a think tank. There's the various different think tanks in the different sectors that you've had. Um, what's, you know, what's the, is there going to be a real world outcome out of this or is it just a load of talk? Well, I think the, yeah, well, it's, it's, a, it's a lot of aspiration, but I think the, the good thing about it is there's a lot of parallel within the programme for government that has just launched only probably less than a month ago now. And really as a business, you know, representative body, we, I suppose we have, I suppose one strand is engaging with government to make sure that they understand what the priorities of the business community are in Cork. And like within the programme for government, there's an awful lot in there, but it's about ensuring that the things that are most beneficial to Cork and, and to the economy uh, are, are, are to the fore and are focused upon by government. Mm. And the other piece then, of course, is looking to businesses themselves. So, you know, all, all of the things that are required to move into a more sustainable space, it's everything from training um, through to education, through to inspiring, you know, through to creating spaces for conversations, for shared learnings, um, and then through to, you know, actually, you know, other specific, uh, very specific, you know, uh, requirements that business will have in terms of what does the next round of funding look like? How does business best draw down the European Green Deal? How do we, you know, um, capitalise on the, the potential for innovation in this space? So, so really, from a chamber perspective, you know, across everything we do, the, the report is, is one of the initial focal points of our Sustainable Core programme, which is about, you know, ensuring that our 1,200 members are as best, best catered to in terms of pivoting to, to this new environment. And as I say, like all of European Union policy um, is, is going in this direction. The programme for government, if for anyone who's uh, who's nerdy enough to get into into reading that, you know, there's, there's a lot of of parallel conversation, but it's just about ensuring that's actually prioritised, you know, and that's actually driven forward with urgency. Mm. Um, and another another interesting thing was that um, we had a very strong support for the idea around Cork competing for, I suppose, in the same way that it competed for capital culture um, in 2005. That. Cork could, in an equivalent way, we put in a very strong application for a European Green Capital, which is another really, uh, really nice um, European award that that comes from the Commission there. Mm. But but the idea of something like that is is you know we've got. An God, incredible I think we have a long way to go before uh, we're Green Capital of anything. Um, well, you know, but you it's gotta, nice to aspire. MI. You do okay, Absolutely. Thompson Q, uh, Cork Chamber Director of Public Affairs. Thanks for that. So it seems that everybody shares this vision of Cork being lovely and green and uh, public transport and cycling and all of these things um, 
don't know, a little bit cynical about it. I wonder um, how much of it is, 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 as he said, it is very aspirational, but how much of that will actually come true. I mean, it's a, we have Greens in government and even still, I think the programme for government wouldn't go half as far as that report the court chamber has issued, um, which, you know, I agree with in full because that's the kind of person I am, but I'm not sure everybody would. Um, so interested to hear your thoughts on that. Do you think that we're progressing in the right direction as regards public transport and things? Um, funny story, I have friends that recently moved to um, Blarney and they decided to go out at the weekend into the city for dinner and they got on the bus and they are astonished by how good Cork's public transport is because they lived in Limerick. <laughs> so if you think Cork is terrible at public transport, there is always somewhere worse and Limerick is worse. <laughs> so um, if, you know, it, 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 it can be difficult to appreciate what you have maybe. Um, so, you know, are we getting there? Is there progress? I'd like to know your thoughts on that. Linked but not exactly the same topic. We got a text from somebody yesterday um, who is too embarrassed to come on the show about this. But I'd love to know who else is out there with this experience. <clears throat> this person, I don't know if they're male or female. Fergal, I think, spoke to them, but they declined to come on air. I see more and more talk about cycling to work. I'm 24 and I never learned to ride a bike. I really want to learn, but I feel kind of embarrassed. I wonder if there is a place in Cork where I can take Cycling 101. Are you out there listening and you've never cycled a bike? I just, that's mad. I, I can't believe people can't cycle at all. I mean, I'm not a very good cyclist. I'm very wobbly and I uh, am not very confident. But, um, like, did you never learn to cycle a bike? 083-396-9696 This person, male or female, don't know, uh, asks whether they can learn cycling 101. They sure can. Ruth Herman from Wild Atlantic Sports is on the line and I'll be asking her how, where, when and how it all works next. This is Cork's Gold Imro Award winning talk show. The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. Text or WhatsApp now. 0833 96 On Cork's 96FM. Now, Ruth Herman from Wild Atlantic Sports is currently running a course as part of Cork Bike Week to learn learn where you can learn to cycle. Ruth, um, are there many people out there who can't cycle at all? Hi Deirdre, yeah there are, you'd be surprised, there are far more people out there who, who can't cycle um, some people just have never really had an opportunity, maybe they've been living in the centre of the city or they've had parents who, who couldn't cycle and so that uh, the lack of cycling I suppose got passed on through so yeah it, it is, it's far more common than you'd think, so it's a bit okay. like swimming most people assume because they can do it that everyone else can but it isn't always the case So, And how did you become a bike tutor? It's kind of an interesting thing to be doing yeah, it is. I suppose um, I have a background in a lot of different outdoor sports and uh, pretty soon after, I suppose, cycling kind of took over. So I've been running cycling courses uh, with Cork Sports uh, Partnership for the last few years. And previously we've been running this program. It's been directed at children who have learning difficulties. But in the last year or two, we decided it would be nice to look at adults um, because quite often when I'm teaching the children, an adult will say to me, do you know what? I never learned myself. And um, so I suppose we saw a bit of an opportunity there and the program has just started up now. We're running in Ballancolig um, for so it's a six week program and really brings people who've absolutely no experience cycling and hopefully will be cycling quite competently at the end of it. OK, so it's running in Ballancolig. Is it in the park? 
Uh, no, it's running one of the Grail schools there in Ballon College. So we've got a nice wide open car park area okay. to minimise the number of crashes <laughs> and uh, just so that we've got lots of space. So the, the six weeks will be run from there. Um, we had our first class last week and we're teaching in small groups. So we've just got a group of five adults. We're running two separate classes um, and it's about 45 minutes long. And just the amount of progress the adults have made in the first week has really been phenomenal. I've, I've taught cycling for quite a while and even I've been blown away by it. But okay. just the, the confidence um, that they've gained even just in 45 minutes on a bike. So, Like... And I suppose to just to just think about it from a very basic level, like I remember, obviously I remember learning as a child and you've stabilizers and then eventually you graduate mm-hmm. to or, or a balance bike these days. They're kind of more the thing these days, aren't they? They um, are, yeah. Is it definitely. more difficult for an adult to learn to balance? Uh, no, not really. Um, quite often adults will pick that up quite quickly. I suppose the traditional route, as you say, is the stabilizers, but the balance bike has really revolutionized things. Um, I suppose the main skill of cycling is being able to balance. Mm. And so it makes sense to focus on that, whereas the stabilizers, you could tip from side to side and and nothing really happened. But with the balance bike, you pick that up really quickly. And as adults, yeah, most people have a good, actually a good sense of balance from doing other sports and just being involved in day-to-day life. So most people pick that up pretty quickly. Okay. So what's your typical um, person who comes to learn? Are they male, female, what age, or is it kind of everybody? Yeah, good good mix of everyone. Um, to be honest, I, I had imagined when we started the programme that it would be maybe older people, but we've had a, a complete mix of ages. Um, so plenty of people, 20s, 30s and up. So, yeah. Okay, it sounds like a a nice thing to be doing at least. And is it, um, so this one is on for six weeks, you obviously, is that one full now because you've started it It already? It is, yeah. So I suppose there's been a great reaction to the programme and I'm sure we'll be running ones again in the future. So if people are interested in taking part, they should have a look at the Cork Sports website. So Mm -hmm. www.corksports.ie. There's a huge range of programmes on there and there's also the Adult Learn to Cycle. And I suppose the other thing for people to be aware of is there's uh, Bike Week is coming up, so it's normally run in June, but obviously it's been pushed out this week, this year. So it's going to be running on the 19th to the 27th of September, and there'll be a huge range of both online and offline uh, courses and events running as part of that. And so lots of clubs and groups get involved and run lots of events for Bike Week. So it's a uh, it's a great one to look out for and to keep an eye on in in the weeks to come. There's been such a a boom in cycling um, in the last few months that I'm sure people are just looking out for opportunities and mm. different programs that are out there. So, Yeah, I'd say there's an awful lot of people who have bought bikes who haven't been on a bike since they were about 10 and <laughs> probably could do with a bit of a uh, brush up, me included. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, absolutely. I suppose the other thing, uh, apart from the Learn to Cycle course, we're also running another course which is more of a follow-on so I, th- I heard you saying there you're you're a bit wobbly yourself. Yeah. So there's a, another follow-on quote called the bike for life. And that really takes people who can cycle but maybe aren't very comfortable mm. who want to build up a little bit of distance. So it builds them up from just starting out up until about being able to cycle 20k. Wow. So that's also a, a nice one for people as, as they've just got back on their bikes. It's another one to be aware of and to have a look out for. That sounds really good. And would that teach you kind of the do's and don'ts of, of cycling in the public realm? I suppose that's the biggest yeah. thing. Like our yeah, texture ab- there is talking about cycling to work. That's a huge step for someone who isn't confident. 
It is, yeah. It's a big jump up. But I suppose what we do is we run from um, Blackrock Castle out along the, the track there. So uh, for the first few weeks, we're off the road. And then gradually, again, as people gain confidence, then we build it up and we start uh, moving onto the road and it bit by bit. And I suppose there's also a great, for both of the programmes, there's a great comfort in knowing that there are other people who are the same as you and mm. who are looking for the same kind of skills. So there's a good bit of camaraderie and a good bit of fun involved in it all. Okay, Ruth Herman from Wild Atlantic Sports. Thanks for that. Very interesting. You kind of learn something new every day. So, texter, person, lady or gentleman, I don't know, who texted in about not being able to cycle. There is a way. There are classes. There are loads of other people in the same boat. So, please do go and find out from CorkSports.ie what might suit you and uh, get get on your bike and get going and see if um, see if it might be something for you. I think that's that's a brilliant idea and that uh, that kind of follow on course that might suit me because um, somebody said to me last week, "Oh, you're." A keen cyclist because I saw a picture of me once uh, on a bike on Instagram um, I'm not a keen cyclist, I'm a really really uh, basic level cyclist I would cycle about two kilometres on the flat um, and uh, terrified of cars and everything so um, I think those courses sound absolutely brilliant loads more of your texts in relation to schools um, Dennis says people are talking about the doll being off for six weeks obviously people are complaining about the doll being off for six weeks Dennis which is fair enough but Dennis says you know what I say at least when they're off they're doing us no harm <laughs> yeah I say you've a point there Dennis The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan on Courts 96 FM Good morning if you're just joining us. We've been speaking this morning about the back to school plans, talking to parents and I'll be hearing from a couple of more parents later on in the show. If you have something you'd like to say about this, 083 396 96 96 is the number to call. Now, one of the things that's been occupying people in the last few days has been, face last few weeks really and months, has been face masks. But in the last week or so, as they're supposed to have become um, mandatory in shops. Now, there's a lot of confusion about where they're mandatory and where they're not mandatory. I was in a shop yesterday and I was the only person wearing one and I kind of had been under the impression that you have to wear them in shops but the guidance on the government website is still a bit vague about that and I wonder is it because like some of the other things they haven't been able to get it into legislation yet so it's a bit woolly um, deliberately but nonetheless we all are aware now that best medical advice is to wear a mask a lot of the objections to masks from people include things like that they have medical conditions meaning they can't wear them, which is fair enough. But a lot of people have said that um, they make you feel faint because you're not getting enough oxygen. Now, Dr. Matthew O'Toole, who is a GP based in Dublin, um, did a video on Twitter wearing six face masks at the same time, six of the disposable medical ones, while connected to a monitor displaying no change whatsoever in his oxygen levels. Uh, Dr. Matthew O'Toole, good morning. Good, good morning and thanks for having me. Did you expect to go as viral as he went? <laughs> No, I didn't. I didn't expect to go as viral as COVID in the States, definitely not. <laughs> Over 20 million views around the world. Um, have you got a lot of abuse from the anti-maskers? Um, I suppose I have. Um, I've ignored most of it, but I, I have. Uh, I've got a lot of abuse. I've had emails and uh, posts sent to me personally. I don't know where they got my email. Post? Where they got my Physical post? <laughs> Physical post from, from the States, from Canada. So, uh, what? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What was in it? Um, oh sure. I mean, just I mean, to be honest, a lot of people have spent a, a lot of time uh, trying to to basically debunk what I'd said. But yeah, post sent to my, my my work address, my home address, 
Um, yeah, so just basically saying that I was spreading misinformation and doing more harm than good. But I mean, look, there's always going to be those that disagree with everything, whether it's the wearing of masks, whether it's the wearing of seatbelts. You'll always always have a crowd of people that will disagree with you no matter what you mm. say. Mm. Even despite all the available scientific evidence. Yeah, I mean, and, and that's the big one. I mean, when it comes to the wearing of masks, um, like there's just such a strong body of evidence when it comes to this. And it's not just from, from COVID. Like this this argument comes across every year when it comes to the flu season. Mm. We just saw the exact same thing happened uh, in, in Asia when it came to SARS. So like there's a, such an incredibly strong body of evidence that number one, that wearing masks reduces your risk of picking up a viral infection, no matter what that viral infection is, mm. and also reduces your risk of transmitting it, but also that it has no effect on your oxygen levels whatsoever. Yeah, so you, you set up the um, oxygen monitor, and we can hear in the video the beep beep of the, of the monitor, and it's consistent the whole way through, because that is one of the things that's being said. Now, I know that some of the people who are saying they can't wear masks can't because of certain medical conditions. Like, what medical mm. conditions would actually prevent you from wearing a mask? Yeah, and I suppose this is important because we've been getting, uh, I mean, the reason I did the video initially was because people were kind of coming to us saying, I'm, I'm really worried about wearing a mask because I'm, I'm worried it's going to reduce my oxygen levels. And, and, and the reality is, if you have an underlying medical condition, whether that's asthma or COPD or some sort of lung problem, the wearing of mask, it, it won't affect your oxygen levels at all. And, it, it you know, it, it won't. So, for example, if you have COPD, your oxygen levels might be 94, 93% at baseline. Uh, and if you wear a mask on top of that, it won't reduce your oxygen levels. Now, the, the one thing the mask does is it does create a little bit of resistance towards mm-hmm. the front of your face, which can be a bit uncomfortable. Now, it will cause you no medical harm, but it, it can be a little bit uncomfortable. So the, the people that can't wear masks, it tends to be more for um, comfort or psychological reasons as opposed to the fact that it has an impact on your lungs. So we know, for example, children just can't wear masks, and that's completely understandable. Um, other people that physically can't put their masks on or off, that, that's another group of people that can't. But in terms of an underlying medical condition, um, you know, having an underlying lung condition like asthma or COPD doesn't mean that you can't wear a mask. But there are people that the wearing of masks causes them to panic or causes claustrophobia. So mm-hmm. it's not that the mask is harming them. It is more of a psychological effect that it's having on them. Okay, so it doesn't actually impact on your breathing. It just might feel like it is. Yeah, so I mean, as I said, it can make the breathing feel a bit more uncomfortable because mm. there is a little bit of resistance towards the front of your face. But um, as I said, I mean, even if you decided to wear six masks, it won't affect your oxygen levels. It just may make it a bit more uncomfortable. But at no point will it reduce the amount of air or oxygen going into your lungs. And I think that's a really important message to get across because mm. I have patients coming into me and some of the stuff you read on social media, it's pretty convincing, you know. Oh, yeah, I've seen pictures circulating of people who supposedly went into a coma because they were wearing a mask and all this kind of stuff. Like, that's not actually in any way realistic, is it? It's, it's totally unrealistic. And you know what? It's really unhelpful. And as I said, I mean, the reason I did the video was I had patients coming into me actually showing me, uh, you know, what looked like scientific papers for people that put a mask on and collapsed. I mean, the reality is I have colleagues who are surgeons that have worn masks for eight, nine, ten hours straight and if, if the surgeons were collapsing because they were wearing masks we'd all be in very serious trouble you know <laughs> we would we so know about it's, it's, yeah no so it's just totally untrue and it is unhelpful and as I said if it is kind of discouraging people from wearing masks then, then that's going to cause a problem okay in terms then of the take up of masks um, as I said I was in a shop yesterday and I was the only person in there which I was really surprised at um, <clears> but we've had when we've discussed this on the show we've had people saying well I went to my GP surgery and no one there was wearing one so why should I wear one um, <clears> do you think in some respects sometimes the medical people are a little more careless because they feel they know more yeah, I mean, the, the advice or the guidance for, 
for medical professionals, I mean, look, in our practice, we're all wearing masks uh, or face coverings. And like the guidance is very clear that if you're in a situation where you can't socially distance from someone, so you can't put a minimum of one metre, but ideally two metres between you and someone else, then you have to wear a face covering or a mask. That's mm-hmm. it. It's very simple. Uh, I know we're doing that in our practice. I, I'd hope that the majority of my colleagues are doing the same because that's what we should be doing, you know. Um, I mean, in terms of the, the use or the uptake of masks, I think, to be honest, it was very poor up until it was made mandatory on public transport two weeks ago. Yeah. Um, I'd often take the bus to work and prior to that, I might be the only person wearing a face covering or a mask. Certainly on public transport now, it's it's not 100%, but it's about 80%. But I, I think you're right when it comes to shops. I mean, it's totally hit and miss. So I could be in a shop, uh, doing my grocery shopping one week and 90% of people are wearing face coverings. And then the following week, it could be 20%. And because you're right, it's totally confusing whether we should be wearing them or not. So I think the government has a bit of work to do when it comes to the wearing of face coverings in shops because the message isn't clear. Mm, okay. Okay, Dr. Matthew O'Toole, thank you for that. And people can check out that video online by just Googling it. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's pretty much everywhere. Um, 20, 20 million, sorry, uh, views, and it's up on his Twitter, which is Dr. Zero Crack, which I think is pretty much the way people are viewing all of the um, virologists and medical professionals these days. Um, yeah, so I don't know. Are you wearing a mask out and about? I think most people... Certainly most people who contact the show are saying they are. Um, but no. Uh, caller says maybe it's the bad air that people are breathing out that is making people feel unwell. It's not about what you mean about bad air, but it says it's warmer and obviously you need to be breathing back in oxygen. It does get trapped for a moment when you're breathing it back out, but there is no decrease in your oxygen levels from wearing a mask. That's scientific fact. Um, data protection, that's an interesting one and I wondered when we would get this text. Uh, I deleted the COVID app because I believe it's an invasion of one's privacy and they could be using it now to cut the COVID payment, so bye bye app. They couldn't because the app doesn't have any of the details that would show them that you are on or off the COVID payment. Um, it doesn't have your PPS number or anything like that. The way they were getting the information from people travelling was social welfare inspectors are actually at the airport basically going up to you and saying can I have your details? Um, I don't know about the legalities of them doing that in that situation. I don't know if you're obliged to answer their questions or not. Um, I, I actually don't know if anyone listening does know they can tell me but I saw this being discussed earlier on Twitter and um, there are some question marks maybe over that. There were plainclothes guardians as well yeah I saw that but I saw a photograph of um, a photograph of social welfare inspectors actually in high vis gear that said social welfare inspector um, at Dublin airport uh, talking to people somebody says a plain coast guard asked you for name address and a form of identification which they're entitled to do at a port oh really that's Fergal is telling me that now um, okay and in that case you do have to answer them and the social welfare inspector overhears it Oh, crikey, crikey, okay, that's very sneaky. But nonetheless, it's nothing to do with the app. Um, the app, I don't believe the app information, the level of information the app would, would be able to give them that. Um, if anyone knows different, let me know, but as far as I know, it doesn't. Uh, 1850-715-996. Now, Minister Simon Harris, who is the new Minister for Higher, ed- higher and Further Education, um, had a meeting yesterday with stakeholders from across the third level sector about sexual assault and sexual harassment on college campuses. This is a thing that it's been a really big deal in America for a while because what happens is um, if you have an encounter in college that is is non-consensual, your only recourse is to the guards, which obviously takes time and it doesn't... um, 
it doesn't result in any direct impact on what's happening on the campus. And some places, I suppose, can maybe have environments that are conducive to, to these kind of things happening. We saw an awful lot in America in relation to, say, college football teams and the access they have and the sort of permissible nature of of administrations around them because they're so useful to the colleges because they bring in money, obviously, and they bring in, in all sorts of um, goodies for the colleges when, when they have winning football teams. That became has been a big thing, I suppose, for about 10 or 15 years now. But Simon Harris has now said the colleges that failed to take action to eliminate sexual assaults on campus could see their funding cut. And God knows they will all say they're not getting enough funding as it is. Mary Crilly from the Cork Sexual Violence Centre joins me next to discuss that. This is Cork's Gold Imro Award winning talk show. The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. Text or WhatsApp now. 083 396 On Cork's 96FM. So, in this big meeting yesterday with college authorities, Simon Harris warned the colleges that failed to take action to eliminate sexual assaults on their campuses could see their funding cut. He said they need to take concrete steps to tax tackle sexual and gender-based violence on campuses and they're expected to produce action plans as part of efforts to eliminate sex crimes in third level institutions. Mary Curley from the Cork Sexual Violence Centre. Is this a big problem Mary? I think it's a huge problem I mean I think yeah, Mary Mitchell O'Connor kind of got this group together a couple of years ago um, when you and PJ and I talked about kind of rape on campus mm. and the rape with the freshers that's where all this is coming from um, I mean I hope Yes, it wasn't a PR exercise. I didn't go up to it. I could have gone up, but I decided to just wait and see what came out of it. Mm. Because I remember when I saw the minister's kind of press release saying he was shocked. You know, that kind of annoyed me because um, we've been looking for a savvy report, a sexual assault and violence in Ireland report that was done in 2002. Yeah. And Simon Harris was asked to look at it in 2017 with other ministers. So when they come out and they say, oh, they're shocked by the figures. I know it's a small thing, but it just kind of annoyed me because it just felt again to me like do... Um, victims and survivors, both male and female, of sexual violence matter. Mm. You know, they can be that flippant. I do welcome anything that that, that makes a change, though. Um, but the research that students themselves would have done would have said two thirds of, stu- of female students are raped, and one th- or one third are raped, and two thirds um, are victims of sexual harassment in college. So it's a huge problem. And at any one time, thirty percent of our clients in the centre are students. When you talk about young women who come to college, who are kind of wide-eyed and who are invincible and who are excited and nervous about everything, and then in one quick swoop, somebody does something that just changes their life forever. It mm-hmm. does change their life forever. And I find on campus there isn't a zero tolerance. Just talk about it, and there's all these consent classes, um, which I think consent classes would be great for young women to know, like some of them have said, they're in really good relationships with guys and they learn from the consent that they don't have to be with them every night or they don't want it. Mm. You know, so it's working that kind of way. But I think the idea of an adult man, and most men do not do this, um, and, you know, teaching an adult man right and wrong and what consent is and what consent isn't is outrageous because they know. And the mm. men who are raping um, don't want consent. That's the whole thing. I think it's about time the good guys, and there's so many of them, started calling out their friends because they know who's doing it. They know their friends are doing it. They'll warn girls kind of off their friends. They'll do a bit different bits and pieces, but they won't stand up and say, this is it, zero tolerance. You can't do this anymore. Mm. And we need to make that kind of behavioural kind of change. 
Actually, mm. it's interesting that you say that, Mary. I read a thread on Twitter recently from somebody fairly high profile. This has kind of been going on on Twitter about various um, different industries over the last while since the Me Too movement. And I read a very moving thread by a, a male, um, a guy on Twitter who said he knew one of his friends was at this and he knew it was an ongoing thing that he was taking advantage of young girls and that he was behaving totally inappropriately and that he was, um, you know, that he was raping women and that he would boast about it and he knew it he kind of didn't say anything he sort of avoided the guy and he kind of made un- dis- you know noises of discomfort and it wasn't until this guy actually raped one of his very close friends that he realised that he should have been the one to stand yeah. up to him um, yeah. and that it was going to take that from people Um I suppose, and that's like on a on a bigger level, Mary, across society, that's something that is going to have to be, um, you know, that is something that's being worked on, but it's going to have to be pushed further. But with regard to the campuses specifically, though, Mary, like, don't we have a criminal justice system to deal with this? Like, what role does a university or an IT or whatever have in this? Well, from my experience, um, you know, in colleges and my experience when, you know, we go on to us and, they, and we talk about young girls being raped, the first thing is they say to me, where did it happen? And it's nearly a sigh of relief if it didn't happen physically on campus. Mm. So there is that attitude. If it happened outside, well, you know, that's really awful. That's OK. We're safe. And, a, you know, a kind of sigh of relief. Um, and that's not good enough because, I mean, students are their responsibility as far as I'm concerned. And there isn't a zero tolerance policy. I think for young men like that, we need to help him to be able to stand up and not feel isolated and stand up and be able to do something about it. And I think it was unacceptable if we just thought about this young girl maybe being an elderly woman. We wouldn't think twice mm. about reporting. We wouldn't think twice about, you know, catching this guy and saying this isn't done. But when it comes to a young girl, it's like we see them as fair game. Now, one thing during COVID, during the lockdown in March, we've been in the centre every day, like since um, the lockdown, we haven't left, we haven't been, had the door physically open, but we've been on phone and Zoom every day since. Mm. We haven't been over the sexual assault treatment unit because of, you know, COVID and health issues and that kind of thing. And a lot of people would say to me, it's young girls who are raped at night time out drinking who end up in the sexual assault treatment unit. Mm. Well, they had about 35 during the COVID time. There's no drinking, there's no parties, there's no um, pubs. And I'm not talking about kind of April, May when the COVID parties are very deliberate. I'm talking about before then when people were afraid to move. And young girls were in apartments and they were with guys who they knew they were either flatmates or the friends of flatmates and they got raped. Wow. It's nothing to do with drink, it's nothing to do with anything else. They've been ringing us and... I, I really thought in that period there'd be nobody going to Sato. I really thought there wouldn't yeah. be because, you know, even if somebody did get sexually assaulted, I didn't think they'd go over there, but they were. So it just shows you, I, we all know domestic violence was happening nonstop as it does during COVID, but this was another thing where young girls, again, were the target of male violence, you know, even during that time. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. 
PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. That's quite and shocking. And violence, I often think... If we really look at it straight on as a crime of power and control, nothing against men, nothing, because the majority are doing it. And if we can clearly look at the guys who are doing it and say they're going to continue unless we stop them, mm. instead of making excuses and saying, well, why are they doing it? What did the girl do? She was drunk. She was asking for it. And just put the blame back where it belongs. And I think in campuses especially, because young people are starting off their lives there. Yeah, and it's young men, I mean, it's an it's young men that are getting raped as well. It's not yeah. just young girls, the majority of young girls, but come on, we need to have a zero tolerance. It's a very formative time and I suppose there is that level of freedom where in school, you know, they're expected home every night and their parents knew where they were most of the time and all of that. But in college, you really are kind of fending for yourself for the first time. But I suppose, maybe just to go back to like, what can universities or ITs or whoever authorities actually do? Like beyond education and beyond changing the culture, um, like for example, if there is an allegation made against somebody, um, you, you wouldn't say that they should be kicked out upon an allegation presumably people have to be convicted before something happens in any case well I think there needs to be very clear policies and procedures and I think somebody asked me yesterday you know when you used to see your CIT the people get good support and I think they get great support if they find the right people mm. but very often the people who are sexually assaulted don't know where to go don't know who to talk to don't know what they can do and there isn't clear policy that somebody's raped by a colleague a workmate a lecturer or the other side round of a lecturer is raped by a student which we've come across as well wow. there isn't clear and definite policies about this this isn't acceptable and this is what it's going to do. And I think like anything else, um, I totally agree innocent to prove guilty, but there's ways of kind of separating people, there's ways of kind of working a situation out where the girl doesn't have to sit every day kind of in a class with them. There are different ways where we can support people and help people, you know, without um, convicting. Because you're right, if somebody isn't convicted, well then in reality they're not guilty in the eyes of the law, but there are mm. other ways around it. Okay, because I suppose you do have this issue of double jeopardy. We see it obviously with with very high profile people who are maybe accused of something and they lose their job, um, and you know maybe then also they go on to be convicted or whatever. But should you lose both your liberty and your livelihood or your education or whatever it is, um, in that case, like is it is it fair to to apply more than one procedure to somebody? I suppose is the question. And that's a hard one because um, you know I'd love every sex offender, everybody who's accused of rape to be held accountable for it and for instance we even go to court or go somewhere where somebody can decide or a jury can decide one way or the other. I mean that's a dilemma because in most crimes whether it's murder or robbery the guy is up in court saying he's named and there's no deal about that um, and the sexual crimes we're looking for him to get extra protection and I often wonder why because mm. I think we're going to give it to him and I can see why. Well why don't we give it to everybody else who's accused of a crime? 
why do they get special treatment? And again, I can understand they kind of say it's the worst thing that can happen to a guy that he can be accused of this, but by God, it's the worst thing that can happen to a girl and stuff is on Facebook about her and everything and, you know, she's very often named unwittingly. Mm. But I suppose I would like a decision made one way or the other. I don't have, you know, an agenda about this, so I'd like a decision made one way or the other, either name them or don't name them, mm. but let's kind of just start laying down ground rules and saying this isn't done, this isn't appropriate. Look at the effect it has on people. I yeah. think we like to look at rape as kind of like, sure, she was drunk and sure, she's a slut and she's with everybody anyway, so she probably didn't even know what happened. Um, or especially young girl who doesn't remember what happened, we kind of dismiss it as if it doesn't matter, and the bloody well does matter. So it really is looking at it as crime it is, and as how it's destroying some young person's life and just do something about it. And I think even the fact that colleges are talking about it is brilliant. Yeah. I really welcome that. And I love the energy of getting involved because they want to make changes all the time. Mm. So, you know, my approach would be, I hope it wasn't a PR exercise, we put everything we can behind it to see what happens. Okay, Mary, thanks for that. Um, it's yeah. Oh, actually, before I let you go, Jared has texted in on a total tangent, I think, but he says, "Doesn't forcing females to share women's safe spaces with any biological males self-identifying as women not effectively amount to sexual harassment?" Any thoughts on that? I, I didn't quite get that. Sorry, Jared says, "Doesn't get I think I think Jared, Jared is bringing uh, trans uh, yeah. transgender people's access to uh, traditionally women's spaces into this." Jared says, "Doesn't forcing females to share women's safe spaces with any biological male self-identifying as women not effectively amount to social um, sexual harassment?" You know, and, and I think on, on the side of the centre, I'm not going to comment on that. I mean, all I can say is that. People who come for counselling come in in whoever they are and however they identify. And we've, you know, counselled and supported lots of different people. Mm. But in regards, you know, commenting on whether somebody should be here, there, and wherever, you know, that's not my role. Or that's not. I can't make that call. Mm-hmm. Okay. All Mary I can Curry. say is that, and everybody's welcome in here if they need support or if they need counselling. Great. Thanks, Amelia. Mary Crilly from the Cork Sexual Violence Centre. Um, and of course, um, that's in really. We'll be talking, I think, to somebody from UCC Students Union tomorrow who was at that meeting yesterday, um, who will be able to kind of give us a bit more detail maybe on what the plan is. Aisha says, wrong approach by a mile. This is a complex issue that requires a multifaceted, nuanced approach. Media sound bites with suggestions of quick fixes like fines for colleges counterproductive and helpful yeah and unhelpful I kind of agree with you Ida I don't actually know what they want colleges to do Um, and you know like obviously I've seen this with my own eyes I have seen friends who were affected by this kind of thing in college it happens all the time it is a part and parcel I would say of college life for a lot of people Um, and obviously you would like that to not continue. Nobody should be put through those awful um, ordeals that people are. But what do they actually want the authorities in colleges to do? That's that's what I would like to know. And maybe we'll get more detail on that from the students' unions. Because saying, okay, somebody was raped on campus and that rapist has been convicted. Well, here you go. You see, here's a big fine or UL or WIT or wherever. Um, that it doesn't make any sense. Like, I don't know how the college can be held liable for that really unless... For example, it's your flatmate in student accommodation. Maybe you could sue the landlord, but um, equally that that could be the case in any shared house. So I, you know, and as Mary said, that's quite shocking. Mary said that there were 35 people attended the sexual assault treatment unit here in Cork during the lockdown. That is really distressing to hear. And I suppose it does give the lie, as she said, to all of the talk about... Um, 
to all of that talk about house parties and girl, people going to nightclubs and uh, hookup culture and all that because there was none of that happening during the lockdown but 35 people presented themselves at the sexual assault treatment unit during the lockdown requiring um, treatment after being sexually assaulted. That is a, a pretty shocking statistic. Um, coming up after the break more parents discussing their fears about um, their fears about returning to school or does high risk and doesn't think she can send her child back to school. Jean is a teacher and a parent and she has concerns. Um, also want to mention breaking news there's a rise in German coronavirus numbers it's of great concern according to I think the WHO and also German authorities are warning people not to make any essential travel to parts of Spain so there you go some of that reopening is already um, off, the, off the agenda again um, Orla is on the line I'll be speaking to her very shortly just to take these first but Orla's high risk and she doesn't think she'll be confident to send her child back to school stay tuned for that This is Court's Gold Imro Award winning talk show The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan Call us now 1850 715 On Court's 96FM Orla Burke is a parent She's spoken to us on the show before about various parenting related issues and about sustainable living in Cork but Orla suffers from a long term illness and doesn't believe she'll be able to let her little girl go back to school Orla, what were your thoughts when you saw the plan? Hello? Hello? Is Orla can you hear me? there? Hi, Orla, can you hear me? My, my face had pressed the mute button. No worries, <laughs> happens all the time. Um, so I suppose um, it's been a long few weeks and there's been this talk about this uh, plan coming out and I suppose there's been little partial parts been leaked and then in the newspapers and then finally yesterday at half five we all tuned into RTE to await the announcement. Um, it wasn't particularly, uh, I wasn't particularly enthused by it. Um, I suppose they, they didn't mention children who are high risk and staff who are extremely high risk. Um, they didn't mention people, staff whose family, um, who live, members who are high risk or children who live with high risk individuals either. Mm. So, uh, it, it, that was mentioned and it was brought up by the various bodies who were talking to the Department of Education and Schools before this. So it's not like this is new to them that families live, you know, staff and children live with families. So, yeah. you know, they, 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 yesterday we were just ignored um, and it, it was brought up to them already. Yeah, I gather, I'm, I'm following a thread here by Trina Golden, who I'm sure you know from Twitter there. She's yeah, a, a primary school principal. Yeah. And she's saying that people who are very high risk will be catered to for um, online learning. Um, children who are very high risk will be allowed to do online learning provided their doctor certifies them as very high risk. That has apparently a number of particular conditions that qualify. And so will teachers who are um, very high risk will be facilitated to work from home as well. But obviously that doesn't cover you because it's not your child who's high risk, it's, it's your Self, isn't it? Yeah, it's myself. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I suppose the, the situation is is that I would still be under the cocooning advice that's been given to people, even though I'm under seventy. Um, and I mean, the likes of the Disability Federation of Ireland have been very good about bringing this up to the uh, Vulnerable Person Committee. It's part of Enfet, which is that this isn't appropriate. The advice that there is there isn't actually appropriate for people who are, um, say, younger people like me with with families. Mm. We were asked to stay in a room in our house to use a toilet separate from our families and to have no contact with our families for two months. And I have a four-year-old and a one-year-old. Mm. Uh, younger people living in co-living situations. 
uh, they don't have these options often you know there's, there's, there might be one toilet shared between four or five young people and they still can be on um, high risk people yeah. extremely high risk people and then older people who live in multi-generational households where oftentimes as you know with this kind of the aspects of people trying to buy homes you have young families moving back in with grandparents yeah uh, you know, it's it, you know. So this is a situation where it's not just me. I'm not an isolated case mm. here. This is happening up and down the country. People are like me, are in situations where they they can't isolate themselves from their four or five year old or eight year old or ten year old in school. Um, what do they do at night when their child cries and they they need comfort? Um, mm. It's it's shocking. Like I'm I'm actually very upset. Yeah. Uh, you know, um, I have to say, um, Disability Federation of Ireland. Um, my local rep and um, Lira have they, they've been great. People aren't listening. They're, we're, we're, we're again, we're just being ignored, um, yeah. like we have been for the last few months. Unfortunately, I suppose with this and with the cocooning, like I absolutely hear where you're coming from. That's impossible. You couldn't have isolated from small children. Cheapers, they find you if you sat up in the roof. Like the, I mean, I know I can't even I can't even come home and go to the toilet after work without no. someone cr- crawling on me. So I know exactly. Um, that's not just not at all an option. Yeah. Um, but I suppose like what what are the options? Like, is there an option that's going to keep you totally safe and allow you to have any kind of a family There's no life? option that's going to keep any of us totally safe at this mm. point. You know, we there is a certain amount of acceptable risk yeah. but you know children you know I mean what's the problem here is not is not COVID-19 the problem here is that we have one of the lowest we have the third lowest funding for um, for schools in the OECD or mm. in, in, in the Eurozone with the third lowest funding um, we this is 40-50 this is years of underfunding of a, of a group schools are running on Fumes. Mm. They're being pushed through. The last few years, it's, it's principals, it's it's parents' associations, it's parents. I think Trina had some figure. It was it was something like fifty seven percent of the activities in the schools are funded by the DEF. The rest is funded by the schools. Yeah. You know this this what we're seeing here today. And when we point the finger of blame at unions when we do this kind of thing, what we're seeing today is is, is a lack of of um, a lack of funding over many many years into what's one of the most important places that we can have social justice in mm. this country. It's when we when we tackle early years and when we tackle um, schooling when when we fund that we end up balancing out inequalities that will show up all the way through later life. And it's an area where we can actually make huge changes and we completely underfunded and neglected. Yeah, it was one of the things that actually came across really strongly during the lockdown that there was a couple of schools... Um, I think one of them, particularly on the north side, I can't remember which school it was, but there was a desh school on the north side where the kids all got free school meals. And within like a few days of the lockdown, in fairness to them, immediately almost, they had arranged, they had rearranged all those meals to go to the kids' houses so that they were not going to be at risk of food poverty. And I just thought that was so impressive. But if every school had the resources that some of the desh schools have, um, you wouldn't have a lot of these problems in the first place, would you? Well, the desh schools the desk schools need that extra funding yeah. for those children. You know, yeah. I mean, that's that's the reality. But in other schools, it's, it's just being funded by uh, sheer force of will. Mm. <laughs> you know, really, it's, um, it, we have no idea how, how poorly off we are. We have no idea what the school leaders are, are, are expected to do. And I think this is part of the problem is, mm. is that we, we show up and we, and we see our children going to these schools and these wonderful teaching environments. 
um, and we think that it's actually okay, but it's not. It's not. It's what they're expected to work under and have been working under for many years. It is not appropriate. Yeah, it's one of the um, things to talk about the cleaning in the document, and nobody says he's going to do that. Like I remember yeah. going in with my mother every August to clean her classroom. You know, give it a deep clean and actually take out everything. And God knows, classrooms are very cluttered environments. The best of time because you have all this extra equipment and yeah. no storage and nothing, nothing kind of no extra resources for those kind of things. I don't know who's expected to do all of that stuff if they're going to be able to recruit. Um, I suppose, Orla, for you now looking at this, um, like your four-year-old, is your four-year-old, was were they due to be starting school in September? Yes, August really. Like it's, yeah. it, They all start in August now and it's, um, I suppose that the, the issue is, is that as we haven't been mentioned um, as a grouping, even though we, our attention was brought to staff and children like, like mine, um, I suppose now it's going to we're going to have to seek clarity on what happens. Mm. I mean, it may become down. I don't know what I'm going to have to do. Am I going to have to bring her in every day, get her to sign the role and then remove her from the class so that we can maintain her place? Mm. Is that the situation that we'll be forced into? I don't know. Um, I'm hoping that we'll get clarity over the next few days because that often happens is that a bit, something is released and then they realise, oh, we've forgotten about that group that we were told yeah. to look at as well. So I'm hoping that over the next few days through various public reps we'll be able to actually get some clarity on that. I also think, you know, in other countries, families were allowed to keep their child the child at home if, if they felt that that was more appropriate for them even if there wasn't a high risk situation at home and they didn't they weren't penalised and they didn't lose their school place mm. so people, there's parents out there who, who really who are in a position if you imagine it, if somebody is in a position and there is no high risk in their family and they do keep have the ability to keep their child home um, essentially there will be less children in that class so less risk of exposure for the other children who do have to attend. Yeah. So I suppose that, you know, th- those those families would also be doing, you know, taking some pressure off the system, but they will lose their place in school. And this is a real, and you can imagine in, in, in Cork City and County where yeah. the places are at a premium, that that is not going to be a possibility for many families. They will just have to send their children no matter how uncomfortable they are with the risks that they are being posed to them with no masks and no social distancing. Um, being provided in the schools. Yeah. So, I mean, it's, you know, it, it, it's not just people like me at extremely high risk um, situations. It, it's other people. And I think th- this document didn't, wasn't, wasn't deep enough, really, um, and, and didn't, didn't clarify enough, really, in that area. Okay. Um, Orla, best so, luck with trying to figure out what's what. Um, I, I, cheapers, I don't know what to say to you really because it's a, it's a huge dilemma. Um, hopefully there will be some clarity over the next few days, and yeah. we we might come back to you if there are any changes that, or if there there do appear to be provisions being made. Um, and uh, yeah, we'll we'll talk to you before the end of August anyway and see what you've decided. Thanks, Orla, and I'd say thank thank you. I'd say there are a lot of. A lot of people listening in similar situations. I mean, we, I suppose because of the timing of the show and that kind of thing, we do have a lot of listeners who are at home caring for somebody with an illness or a disability. We have a lot of people who are at home because of an illness or a disability themselves um, who do have families. I mean, you kind of hear a lot about people with disabilities and everyone assumes they have no nobody, you know, but the, depending on the type of disability you have, it could be acquired, it could be something medically related um, and you could have children going to school or you could have grandchildren going to school that you even look after a little bit or anything like that. What are you going to do um, in relation to schools? What are your thoughts on it? And Do you, do you feel like, as Orla does, that you've been forgotten? 1850 Jean Dowling next. This is Courts 
Gold Imro Award winning talk show. The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. Text or WhatsApp now. 083 396 96 96. On Courts 96 FM. Now, Jean Dowling is both a teacher and a parent. And um, what are your thoughts on this plan, Jean? Oh, sorry. Hello. Plan for weeks. Hi, can sorry. you hear me? Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, sorry. No, I've been eagerly waiting this plan, I suppose, for weeks because, you know, we've all been there wondering what do we have to do between now and the end of August to make sure that we're all returning safely. And I suppose as a teacher, I can't wait to get back in the classroom. It's been it's been a challenge, um, you know, teaching online. And I'm also deputy principal. I'm a teaching deputy principal. So teaching online and managing at the same time uh, and I suppose homeschooling. Um, like everybody, has been challenging. So can't wait to get back in. But I suppose I'm a little bit um, apprehensive with, with lack of detail in some areas in the plan. Mm. Things like, you know, where possible and, you know, uh, that's, that's I think um, I, I read somewhere that that's in the document 41 times. Um, and, you know, and there is a lot of where possible because everybody's school and everybody's situation is different. Mm. And we will all do our best to make sure that whatever is possible is done to make sure that everything is safe and um, that everybody gets back in as quickly um, and safely as possible. I suppose my, I have a few little things that I, I would wonder about. You know, I have a senior infant. My own daughter is going into senior infants. And, you know, I, I do wonder about them all going into a classroom. Um, it's a, a beautiful, but it's an old school. It's over 150 years old. Mm. And... And they have a lovely classroom, but, you know, there's nearly 30 of them in there. And I just wonder that, you know, there can't be little things done to improve maybe their... their I know they're not going to social distance. Look, you only have to have a play date or to, for yeah. to meet their cousins to see that they... That they, they I, my own little girl, when she came in from her first play date after lockdown, after about 10 minutes came in, she says, Mammy, can you show me what two metres is again? We've forgotten. Mm. You know, the whole the thought of that even is I think most adults have forgotten as well, to be honest. <laughs> well, it isn't that. I'm not sure that they even knew what it was to start mm. with, to be honest with you. So, yes, I, I just think I, I read a really, really interesting person about a, a week ago, or no, about a month ago, I'd say, and she had already ordered Perspex for her junior infants in Dublin. And, you know, so she has them in fours, so they're all facing each other. But yeah. she has a diagonal of perspex in between them. Still, all see each other. Now, I know the virus is airborne. I know it's not going to stop everything. Yeah. But what it might do is stop them sharing, like putting a pencil in their mouth and somebody else picking yeah. it up and putting that pencil in their mouth. Yeah. They can see each other. They can still talk to each other. But it will stop a certain amount of, you know, um, you know, air. It'll stop, you know, a certain amount of um, saliva, I suppose, being. <laughs> been um, shared etc and you know that they might be a little bit safer when they are inside obviously outside you know but it is safer outside anyway we all know that Mm -mm. Um, so that's one thing I think that you know might have been mentioned so you know things like that there are certain small things that they could have done that you know also things you know simple things like insisting that you know they all bring their own stuff that they have to have, you know, um, their own pencils, they have to have their own crayons. And I know in Dutch schools and I know in lots of schools that's not an option. But if it isn't an option, let's give them all little boxes and that's their stuff and they're not sharing it. Yeah. And here, and here we are, we're going trying to tell them to share everything and be good. Yeah, and suddenly <laughs> and there's no, no sharing no, no. at all. Yeah. They're not to share anything. Yeah, you know, it, 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 it's the, the irony of everything we're teaching that we're kind of trying to say, no, you should do this, but you're not to do it at the moment. Yeah. 
Um, so it's yeah, difficult. I suppose that's one issue. Yeah, like yeah, and I think. Sorry, go on. Sorry, no. I think the other issue I have is just can't understand why um, masks at a certain level aren't being advised in the document. Um, they're not even being being advised. There's nothing about mandatory, but there's nothing even being advised. It's where, um, you know, where you know social distancing can't be maintained. Perhaps a visor might be, you know, a good idea. Yeah. So I'm a practical teacher. I teach home economics, mm-hmm. and obviously, um, you know, it's a, it's at junior cycle level now. The exam is fifty percent practical. So having missed so much practical work. Um, from last March, you know, that would be huge emphasis for us between now and certainly in second and third year. And I'm kind of thinking, you know, if, in order for me to teach properly, I need to demonstrate, I need to assist, I need to go in and help a child when they're having difficulties. Yeah. So does that mean now that they have to step back and watch me doing something rather than me assisting them doing it? Or, mm. you know, whereas if at least if there was masks advised, that we could all wear the masks in the practical class, you know, and at least then when physical distancing was for a short period of time um, unavailable or um, we, we couldn't do it, at least then we would all feel a little bit safer. I yeah, and actually in relation to masks, safe. you might have a view on this. Chris said to us on Twitter, I think it's unfair that the roadmap says teenagers can opt to wear a face covering if they like. If they're over 13, there should be a rule because peer pressure is going to influence them. Now, the onus of responsibility should be on the department, not on the children. Yes, I think absolutely. And I think even the onus is on the department rather than the schools. Mm. Because if you, I'm sure there are a load, of, I know there are a huge number of different schools in Cork City alone, let alone in the interland. If one school says one thing and another school says another, you know, that is now, you're now a different ball game. You know, it's, you have one child going to one school and they say, you know, all boys school, for example, says, no, you don't have to wear masks and all girls says you do or vice versa. Yeah. And you have two kids going to out of your house in the morning with both different um, mindsets and, um, you know, two different playing fields. Lots more texts and comments coming in in relation to schools reopening. Mary says, I find it annoying that nobody is talking about the universities going back. Registration fees are three and a half thousand. Accommodation is six thousand. Are they going to be social distancing or studying online? College students need college life as well and a fair chance. Not spending fees to spend 75% of their time online in a room in a house. Mary, I totally sympathise with you. Um, it has kind of gone under the radar because then the colleges decided quite early they weren't going to be able to reopen um, in the normal way and that they would have to do a lot of remote learning. But as you say, people are paying an awful lot of money for both fees and accommodation because um, it, um, it, yeah, it's an awful lot of money and I don't know where you're getting the full value. As you say, college life is, is a huge part of what you're paying for, not just the course. Um, and it's, it's a big experience that students will be missing out on. Make the Frick says regarding what airport inspections. Heidi, how's it going? The Department of Social Protection must have upgraded with checking airports. When I filled in the forms, they asked me, was I sure I was separated? Well, I said she must be very good at hide and seek because I didn't see her for seven years. <laughs> right. Um, someone texts in to say about Dr. Matthew O'Toole and the masks 
I'm not saying he is right or that he is not in a minority but, or that he's in a minority but doctors are differing in their views on masks. This person links to an article in the UK Independent quoting the Deputy Chief Medical Officer in the UK who worries that without proper fitting the mask could trap the airborne virus. Yeah, I suppose the the particular thing that he was focusing on was the oxygen levels um, and look all along there were very very conflicting accounts excuse me very conflicting accounts of what the um of what exactly benefit uh, was in the masks but now they have decided that they're beneficial so that's that's where we're at now um, Mary says in relation to schools hopefully with all the hand hygiene there will be less flu and colds around yeah hopefully Mary I think that there could be an impact definitely on that and hopefully that will kind of help with the I suppose the overburdening on the health system and stuff that there will be some improvement there. Now, uh, today is also World Hepatitis Day um, and it's gas, I suppose, no matter what medical condition we are talking about non-stop for the last six months, people still get all the usual things that they have gotten over time and people are still suffering with chronic illnesses maybe who have had them before. Um, I suppose hepatitis is one of those conditions that strikes fear a bit into people. It was very, very prevalent and very um, people were very afraid of it back in the 80s and the early 90s but nowadays apparently things are quite different Lar Murphy is a hepatitis patient Good morning Lar. Hi good morning to you thanks for having me this morning No problem at all tell me you work with the Hepatitis C Partnership um, things have changed a lot since since I suppose we were hearing about um, contaminated blood, blood products and that kind of thing in the 80s there, there is a lot of treatment now for hepatitis and it's not it's not what it once was No and as today is World Hepatitis C Day the Hep C Partnership is doing a campaign to inform people that it's treatable, it's preventable, and it's curable. And as you have spoken about, there's been a massive breakthrough in the last number of years around the medications for hepatitis C, the regime for the medication. Now it's only 8 to 12 weeks of medication, and it is curable disease now, which is fantastic. Yeah, it's funny. That's one of those um, big cures that kind of went a bit under the radar, isn't it? You'd have expected a lot more singing and dancing about it. Uh, this is the thing, and... The partnership itself is trying to create a pathway that has the medication accessible to all and also people who have put themselves at risk or deemed to put themselves at risk that they can put themselves forward for treatment. Now, there's a number of ways you could have put yourself at risk. It could be some drug use, could be tattoos or piercings, cosmetic procedures, blood transfusions, even sexual contact. Mm. But what we would say as the partnership, if you have put yourself at any risk or you think you may have put yourself at risk, is to get yourself tested. Okay. to find out a negative or positive. And can you do that at your local GP? You can access that through your local GP. You could also access that through your local hospital. Or at home, you can also ring the partnership. Um, we may be able to signpost you to services that can also help you with that. Okay. And there is, of course, a lot of, um, well, there was, I suppose, maybe less so these days, a lot of stigma around some of the ways in which people contracted hepatitis. As you mentioned, drugs or unprotected sex. Um, I suppose there was a bit of a thing of, well, you brought it on yourself. That's kind of gone since since the blood contamination cases, isn't it? It seems to have died down and the government have responded to it. That's not to take away from the people who were, who have acquired this infection either. So. Mm. It is still a sensitive issue for some people. Yeah. But again, it is being looked at and it is a safe way to, to move forward now to get yourself cured of hepatitis C. Okay. And you, you were diagnosed, I think, in 2013. Tell me a bit about your own journey with this. Yeah, I was treated for it in 2013. I would have been diagnosed in the 90s. Wow, okay. And myself, I would have been diagnosed through my own drug use at the time. Mm-hmm. 
since then I have got substance free and I went on to do the treatment and I have went on to get cured of hepatitis C and the effect is, is huge in my own life in my own life as in my health my emotional well-being even the, the fact that I have some lots more energy now where I didn't realise I would, would have been as, as tired or fatigued it's only after when I reflect back of I see the impact it has upon me Okay and so you're working for the Hepatitis C Partnership now so obviously it's something that had a massive impact on your life Oh it had a huge impact on my life and I, we love to see people now coming in and even getting their tests done and even getting their negative tests to put themselves at ease mm-hmm. but then also if they are positive there is a cure it's curable now and it's accessing the treatment and the, the partnership itself is trying to create a pathway that is the same in every county unfortunately at the moment it changes from county to county, the referral pathway, what hospital you go to, it's in the hospital setting and the partnership itself would like to create a pathway for people to have easy access to this mm. medication, whether mm. it's through pharmacy or through a GP, but a lot has to be done for that to happen. Okay, so at the moment it has to happen in the hospital, so you're saying basically your first step is to go to your GP to, to seek a test, or well, I suppose to talk to the partnership, um, but maybe to go and seek a test, but then there's no guarantees that people will get the treatment, is that... Well, it's not It's not that they won't get the treatment, the time frame on it. Okay. Everyone has access to this treatment. People will get treatment if they put themselves forward. It's just the time frame of how long the waiting list may be. Mm. Okay. But it is treatable, it is curable. And, of course, if people leave it too long with hepatitis, that can cause very permanent damage to the liver. Yeah, it can, ha- it can have a big impact on people's liver and liver health. So mm. our, our advice would be, if you know you're diagnosed and you know you have hepatitis, reach out, get some support, get some treatment and get cured. And also, if you are unsure, again, my message will be put yourself forward and get yourself tested. Okay. And what's the number for people to contact the Hepatitis C Partnership on, Lara? Do you have a number there? You can contact the the Hepatitis C Partnership on 086-189-5792 or alternatively, they could ring 01-454-9772. And okay. you can contact their website as well, which is uh, the Partnership.ie. Partnership.ie. Okay, Larry Murphy, thanks very much for speaking to me this morning and best of luck with continued good health to you. And thank you, thank you for having me. Thank, thank you to your listeners too. Thank you. It's no problem. Bye bye. So there you go. Um, it's it's funny. It's one of those things that was really big in the nineties and really kind of um scary, big scary thing. But it's totally curable now, and it's just a question of getting access to the treatment and going looking for it. Pat Dalton is a pharmacist in Cork, and he has been working on this as well. And I'll speak to him in just a moment. If you're somebody affected by this, eighteen fifty seven one five nine nine six. We'd love to hear from you. This is Cork's Gold Imro Award-winning talk show, The Opinion Line, with PJ Coogan. Call us now, 1850-715-996. On Cork's 96FM. Talking about hepatitis C, it's World Hepatitis C Day, which I wasn't aware of, and there are there have been a lot of progress basically in the treatment of Hep C and in the pathways to that. The Hepatitis C um, Partnership. I was speaking to Lara Murphy there from the Hepatitis C Partnership, who was describing the access to treatment as a little bit patchy throughout the country. Pat Dalton is a pharmacist in Cork. Pat, what's the pathway like here in Cork? Uh, no, thanks for having me on, Deirdre. Um, the pathway, I suppose, we, uh, I'm a community pharmacist in North Main Street. 
um, we would be referring people to get tested and I suppose after that then our involvement in, in regards to how they get treated would be limited so mm. I couldn't really comment on how quick or how people are getting tested or how quick they're getting treated mm-hmm. um, but certainly we do feel that the, the awareness of it and the, the the ability of people to come forward to get tested needs massive improvement Um that there is certainly a stigma regarding getting tested for Hep C that we would pick up on when we talk to people that we would be tr- to get tested mm. uh, would be something that they would prefer not to think about and put it on the long finger. We, we know for a fact that Hep C for the first at least year would will be symptomless in in most cases and probably longer than that it will be symptomless. It's not until you're a few years down the road with it where it's taken hold of the liver where it's caused cirrhosis of the liver, mm. scarring of the liver, um, that's when it's got it's taken hold of. And in that time, a person may have infected a number of other people, um, which is a massive problem. So really, from my point of view, what, I'm, what I'd like to get out there is the awareness amongst the general public that they need to, you know, have an honest discussion with themselves. Are they, were they put at risk of contracting hep C? How do we know someone would be at risk of hep C? Mm. We know if they were injecting drugs, um, if they use any needle that isn't clean, may not have been clean. Um, if and then there is that would be the number one way of contracting hepatitis C. There are other other means of contracting it, um, such as you know sexual contact. Um, also, like people who would have maybe you know gotten tattoos, mm. you know. Through um, you know, maybe a, 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 I, I don't know much about getting tattoos. I don't have any myself. But if there was poor practices within a tattoo place that they didn't, um, you know, use clean equipment all the time, they didn't sterilize things correctly, mm-hmm. that would be a risk. Not just tattoos, or any injection really, um, from what, from anywhere. And I know, you know, that, that's quite popular these days. Okay. Um, in terms of the, as you're talking about the awareness and about how um, how people eventually kind of realise maybe that they have it, that you might live with it for a while without really knowing. What kind of symptoms would people have if they have hepatitis C without being aware of it? Okay, well, so at the start, no symptoms at all. Um, but in some cases, you may develop some fever, fatigue, um, decreased appetite, nausea, vomiting. Um, your urine might be a bit dark, um, joint pain. And then as it progresses, you get a thing called jaundice, mm. which um, a jaundice would be a yellowing of the skin and the whites of your eyes. That's a sign of the, the liver is not performing as it should. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not getting r- rid of everything that, 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 that it's meant to do. That's a sign that it's progressed. Um, but in a lot of cases, no, you, you, you won't get any symptoms uh, whatsoever. Um, which is the worrying thing. Okay, so um, it's kind of, it's it's a bit of a shot in the dark for a lot of people, so in terms of getting the test even. It, it is a bit of a shot in the dark, and if you can imagine making an appointment with your GP and having that discussion about thinking that you may have put yourself at risk of, of contracting hepatitis C, it is a difficult, It would for some people it would be a difficult mm. discussion to have because it, it, there would be a question um, asked. That then would, the next question would be, well, why do you think you're at risk? And then yeah. that would involve an admission then that you, you put yourself at risk because you used drugs or you had unsafe 
mostly a drug, but, but, but as I said, in the small cases, they're, they're uh, unsafe sexual practices, etc. Mm-hmm. Um, but yes. So there that, is that a stigma be. probably, you know, that it's quite difficult for people to overcome. Pat, this is something you've been working on for a while. There were some plans before COVID hit to, um, to make that process a bit easier for people. Um, yes, there was. No, we were. We, we there was plans to make the testing, the testing process, and the treatment process. Both of these processes should be made, you know, as easy as possible, so that we get, you know, we get involved, we get participation. Um, now, we we we're a community pharmacy. We're certainly um, we, we 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 would have lots of involvement with different clients that would need to get tested, and mm-hmm. we would be hopeful that whatever whatever. Um, methods of testing are designed the, the test is very simple the, 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 it's a rapid test before it used to take a, about a month to get tested for hepatitis C now it's a rapid 15 minute test with there's two simple tests one is we check for antibodies uh, for the virus and then when we detect the antibodies you have to do a second test to see if the virus has actually taken hold because in a lot of people they will get hepatitis C and they mm. might recover from it themselves, their body might fight it off themselves. In some people, that won't happen. Um, we certainly would love to pay a part. Uh, for, it, it would be a great thing if, if, if community pharmacies uh, would be able to t- test for it. Um, I know there's some pilots going on. We, we currently are, are, are not involved in any of them, so I, couldn't, I certainly couldn't comment on, on any of that. Um, and as regards to treatment, I, I believe the, the treatment is through, it's just through Cork University Hospital at the moment. So again, we, would have, we wouldn't have... Um, at present, we wouldn't have much involvement. I know there are pilot projects initiated where, where treatment can be done in community pharmacies mm-hmm. uh, or doctor surgeries. Um, but, but, but yeah, so hopefully the future will make, I suppose, both the test and the treatment um, more seamless, much okay. more easy so that we get, we get a, a much greater participation in it. Okay. And there's a big problem in Cork among the, the homeless community. There is, a big, there is a problem amongst the homeless community. I think... Uh, I saw a statistic that about a third of, of, of cases of hep C are in the homeless community. Mm. Um, so yes, it, it, and they, they certainly need, you know, they need to be targeted for, for assistance to get tested and to follow up. And if somebody need, has been tested positive and has been identified that it has taken hold, it's become, you know, chronic hepatitis, they need to be followed up with and they do need, in most cases, they will need treatment. Mm-hmm. Um, and support, and again, we, we we do need to reduce the stigma of that. Um, you know, just because somebody is homeless and is down under look as a and and maybe a drug user, um, they, they need every support to eliminate this virus. We we need we we we've we've made a commitment to eliminate it by 2030. That's that's very achievable, um, but only if we test and treat. And I suppose we're all familiar now with coronavirus. Um, and we've got a test for coronavirus, and we're, we're, we're you know, we're, we've obviously done quite well with that. We mm-hmm. don't have a treatment for for coronavirus at present. We do have a treatment for hepatitis C. Yeah, it's it's successful in ninety five percent of cases. We can eliminate this virus by two thousand and thirty if there's a will, and the will needs to come from everybody. It needs to come. It needs to be bought in by everybody, um, both 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 the general public, the people who would have, would be at risk have put themselves at risk of contracting it and everybody else, the policy makers, healthcare professionals such as myself um, and civic society.
Okay. Pat Dalton, Community Pharmacist, thanks very much for that. So if people want to know more about hepatitis C getting tested and um, how to follow that pathway, because you can be completely cured now of hepatitis C, it's hepatitiscpartnership.ie. So if you're somebody who, maybe you don't have any symptoms, but if you have engaged in risky behaviour, such as sharing needles and being tattooed somewhere that isn't very clean um, or unprotected sexual activity, maybe um, they said that's less common. But uh, if you have engaged in that kind of risky behaviour where you may have picked up hepatitis C and you're not feeling the best there may be no symptoms or there may be some of it's developed uh, talk to your GP and see about getting a test and seemingly the test process is not hugely onerous um, Pat from Buttermond texts saying hi Deirdre I missed you last week because I didn't know you were on but I'm sorry you missed it Pat you can listen back on 96fm.ie you love to mention Mallow General Hospital for a very professional approach with my visit this morning for an ultrasound I arrived 10 minutes before my appointment rang from the car park as requested told to come in sanitised my hands to be met by a lovely nurse who took my temperature and showed me where to go I was met by a lovely lady radiologist whom I couldn't thank enough for her kindness and gentleness. Thanks again to all the fantastic staff for making my visit so pleasant. Well, fair play to everyone in Mallow General. That's a really nice message to get. Fair play, Pat. I hope everything is okay and um, your health is is all right. Um, Coming up in a few minutes, staycation scams. Now, a couple of weeks ago, we were hearing loads about really expensive hotels and this kind of thing um, and still people are saying they can't get even hotel accommodation in certain kind of desirable locations like the likes of Killarney I gather are sold out. Um, having said that I was looking for a hotel in Dublin um, for a weekend in August and there are loads apparently Dublin is empty um, but I suppose do you really want to go there if you can't go to pubs and things um, but there have been a number of staycation scams trying to take advantage of people who are looking for a bargain or looking for somewhere to go. I'd be talking to Keith Gross, who's the head of Financial Crime and Security at the Banking and Payments Federation, about what to do if you fall victim to a scam. This is Court's Gold Imro Award-winning talk show. The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. Text or WhatsApp now. 83 396 96 96. On Court's 96FM. Now, drug shortages. It's on the front of the Echo today. Story by Mary Corcoran and Katrina O'Reardon is a pharmacist from O'Reardon's Pharmacy in Enniskeen. Katrina, you've had trouble sourcing medications for your chemotherapy patients. Good morning, dear. Thank you for having me on. Yes, absolutely. I think I was talking to Mary in relation to um, a worrying trend in general where pharmacists have seen an increase in drug shortages. It's something that we would, you know, deal with on a day-to-day basis as it, as it is, but it certainly has got much, much worse. Um, and, you know, we're putting that down to, I suppose, certainly COVID has had an impact on, on that along with everything else. Um, but, um, well, yeah, in my case in particular, one of the one of the medicines that um, we had to put a lot of work into trying to source for patients was um, an oral chemotherapy agent and um, obviously when the hospitals were trying to keep patients out they had transferred this patient to something oral um, and that caused a surge um, and increase in demand and there, there was actually none in the country when I needed it and mm. um, so it had to be it had to be sourced through the UK it involved kind of dealing with a number of different suppliers obviously speaking to uh, most importantly the prescriber and to try and figure out how, what kind of time frame we had because I knew it was due of a Tuesday and this was a Friday kind of thing mm. um, and they were happy to kind of maybe extend the window by about 72 hours and, and in the end we just kind of got it in the nick of time and um, 
Look, as pharmacists, we try and keep that away from the patients because yeah. we're trying to, you know, people are ill and they're stressed as it is. So there is, I suppose, an awful lot of work going on behind the scenes and it's taking up an awful lot of our time um, and it's it's obviously stressful for us. And then, unfortunately, we have to have a conversation with the patient to advise them that there's going to be a delay or indeed that they may have to move to a different medication. And that's very upsetting for patients. And I think, very, like my example, you know, at least half of pharmacists have seen that it can impact on their patients' welfare and health. So um, it's certainly a, a very worrying trend. So this chemotherapy drug is the latest thing, but has it been a trend in regard to other things as well? Yes. Now we would see there, there are an awful lot of medicines unavailable in Ireland at any one time. Um, and we would see that they would come, it would happen often awesome cycles, you know, something will go out of stock, the next thing will come back into stock and it, it'll just, um, you know, always be I suppose, something that's on our agenda. But um, we're certainly seeing longer delays in, in it coming back. And, you know, if you were to look, I suppose, further into it, you would imagine that um, there's been a little bit of a reduction in, in production due to COVID and things like that. But unfortunately, Ireland isn't a priority as a country. Um, there's been um, a lot of price reductions here and currently government policy is focused very much on, on the price of the medicine, which is you know a very reasonable um, you know priority to have because it, nobody wants to pay more for medicines than they need to as a state. But um, I suppose they've lost the, pa- the patient focus. The patient isn't actually the centre of mm. um, the, the purchasing or procurement process in Ireland anymore. Um, and that's what we're worried about because if Ireland is a, a, small, a very small market, obviously we're, you know, your, your truck has to travel overseas to get here if you want to deliver medicines to us. Um, and um, when, when a company has a finite supply of medication, they just aren't prioritising the Irish market. And I suppose mm. what we're suggesting is that we have no involvement in the price of medicines. It's, it's negotiated between the HSE and, and the relevant um, representatives from, from industry. So what we're suggesting is that really where it is a medication that is essential, I mean, currently, you know, I mean, to name but a few, we have um, one of the most popular um, and, and highly prescribed um, antidepressants unavailable. We have HRT, blood pressure medication, um, a very important medication that's for the rhythm of the heart is unavailable. And what we're saying is that really um, we're asking, calling on the, the government and the HSE to, to look at this, to prioritise essential medications and, you know, to enter into kind of um, talks as regards the pricing and the availability of those medications for the Irish market. Mm. It's interesting, actually, you mentioned HRT. I've heard that from a few people. Um, and, like, is is that because of, is it because we're we're not paying enough for it as a country or is it just because we're um, not making it, enough for it? There's, there's a, a belief that there is um, one of the key ingredients is currently unavailable for the manufacturing process. But I suppose what we're concerned about is, um, I mean, like, look, even very public kind of things like where, you know, Trump is saying he's going to buy up all of X, Y or Z mm. drug for America. What we're seeing is that Ireland really just isn't on the priority list for these medicines because I suppose the, the state is, is, is being inflexible on the, in the price and, and it's not patient focused necessarily when it comes to you know individual molecules where you're saying listen this is really important we get this HRT in this country you know can we negotiate um, so what we're worried about is that the minute manufacturing um, you know gets back on track for that medication we're, we're not sure that we'll get it um, mm. and it, it's re- like it is really um, it's very very distressing for patients obviously and like what we're doing I suppose Look, as, as as experts in medicine, what we have to do is look at, you know, first of all, you know, try you try various suppliers, various wholesalers. You try see if you can import it from the UK, and if you can't do that, you're you're speaking with the the prescriber. 
you are trying to, to to suggest as we would um, an alternative. Um, and look, a lot of the time you'll you'll be able to get a very very you know close match, but sometimes you can't. And like in the case of the HRT, you know, the, in particular, it's um, a patch, which is a very very convenient way of of um, and a very effective way of of getting the, the medicine into your system. And people are having to kind of mess around with like a gel plus a patch or, or a tablet plus a patch. Um, and you know, it's, that's that that has. You know, impacted on the patients, um, obviously their quality of life and even control of symptoms. If if they miss the tablet and remember the patch one day, you know that kind of thing. Yeah. So, um, we're you know it, it's it's a domino effect where it affects everybody down the chain. At the end of the day, look, we're facing the patient and we're having these really difficult conversations. And I suppose we're putting an awful lot of time and effort into trying to to source medicines and we're just looking for a little bit of support um, from Spartan Health from the HSE um, you know, where we I suppose raise our concerns about particular molecules and you know, ask them to, to really prioritise internationally sourcing these, these medicines for our patients. Okay, Katrina Reardon, thank you for that. Um, that's a kind of a worrying one. I'd hate to be somebody relying on a medication every day and to be told that you can't get it. That's really, really distressing. If you've been in that situation and you want to talk about it, 0833969696. So chemo drugs, um, heart rhythm drugs, um, HRT is one most people have heard of. That's oh, that's a bit. Um, a bit worrying if you are a patient equally if you are a patient on one of those and you've had no problem in supply um, let us know because obviously it won't be affecting everybody but it will be affecting some people um, going back to my conversation earlier with Mary Crilly Fiona says D an excellent interview with Mary Crilly this morning you could hear it in her voice that she is still passionate about protecting women from sexual violence even after so many years of being at the forefront of her work she's brilliant well done a great piece thank you Fiona she is I agree um, I think she's very um, as you say very very passionate and um, very dedicated to what she does uh, we were in relation to cycling, we were speaking about cycling earlier on the show and about people who have never cycled being able to learn to cycle. You know, I'm not talking about people going on big 100k cycles in Lycra or whatever with their GoPros on their thing. But literally, if you never learned how to ride a bike, how do you learn? And Cork Sports Partnership are offering some classes at the moment on that. Nevin says, funnily enough, I was a mad cyclist before, but since getting on a motorbike, my perception of safety has changed. Now when I cycle, I feel like I should be wearing full PPE like I do on a motorbike. Mad, but there you go. Yeah, there's definitely, and I think maybe a lot of drivers who, you know, people who used to cycle and who now drive are so used to having, being in the bubble of a car and having the security of the car around you, you know, and I mean, if when you're driving, you know that if you hit a cyclist, it's a cyclist going to come out worse of it, not you. Um, so it's, it's it's all about that perception of security and about what you, what protection that you have and you feel you need. Um, coming back to the staycation scams in a few moments with Keith Gross, have you been a victim of that? 083 if you are looking for somewhere to go on holidays in the next few weeks, I guess before the kids go back to school, or maybe even after that using your staycation um, tax credit, which I'm not sure anyone will really be using, but anyway, um, and you have been looking around and you see something that might be a bit too good to be true, uh, Keith Gross of the uh, Banking Payments Federation Ireland, it could be too good to be true, couldn't it? Absolutely, it could be. Um, and that's the case. Um, you see a lot of promotional emails, um, super deals, click here, um, you, in, in, via social media or even phishing emails, which are all fake. I mean, we've seen it in um, holiday purchases, scams for uh, foreign holidays. So invariably, the criminal will and scammers will pivot and, uh, and, and gear towards the Irish domestic holiday goers. Okay, and what kind of thing are we talking about? Well, in a lot of cases we're talking about um, 
bogus emails, um, uh, fake emails, which can contain embedded links to um, what purports to be a genuine website and it can invariably turn out to be a, a fake one and um, where people assume that it's a real website but need to do a little bit more research and see if it is genuine and legitimate. And I'd suggest that people you check the genuine website and type in the URL of the genuine uh, website or seller and um, type that into your browser and take it from there. And then obviously also check the domain names as well. That could be uh, uh, could be interesting as well in terms of spelling and misspelling. So uh, oh, just okay. be mindful of that. Okay, so if something comes up on your social media as an ad that looks like really good value or if people are getting emails as well, Keith, are they? They are, absolutely. Fake, fake emails, a lot of uh, uh, social engineering um, uh, attributed us with those. So uh, yeah, there's fake emails which are uh, um, arrive in your in- inbox and um, you think that's a good deal and you click on the link and, and, and it brings you to a, a fake website. And are people putting their payments details into these? They would. Uh, we have seen it in different scams, and uh, the fear is that they will. They put in their payment emails, details, the credit card, debit card, etc., and also personal information, which could be used again as well in terms of other scams. Okay. So, if you're somebody who has done this and who has maybe got as far as putting in the payment information, and then realised once you've that done that you know it doesn't seem to be working out the way it was supposed to, or you've shown mm-hmm. up indeed even at your holiday, supposedly holiday destination that doesn't exist, um, what recourse do you have? Well, in, in terms of recourse, um, if it is a fake website, it's very difficult to get your money back. Well, what I suggest is the minute you realise if you've um, disclosed your um, personal uh, banking details or security credentials is to get onto your bank and block the payment Im- immediately or else try to uh, try to uh, freeze that payment because uh, the first few hours is crucial. Uh, beyond that, it would be difficult. And, and also, if there's uh, a fraudulent um, activity on your card, the bank will look into that case by case. Um, it's very much, um, you know, on the onus could be on the on the consumer as well because they have authorised the payment. But generally, the banks will look at it and will investigate it on a case by case situation. But time is of the essence in terms of realising that you've made a fraudulent payment, whether that's in a consumer end or even in business. If you've realised you've made a fraudulent transfer to a, a bogus uh, company or even uh, different IBANs and big details, get onto your bank straight away. Okay. Now I know that um, I've, I've heard. Well, I've heard anecdotally that if something like this happens to you and you want to cancel a payment on a credit card, it's quite easy to do that. Um, but it might be more difficult on a debit card. Um, yeah. Well, the debit card is more immediate, and um, that is the case. It comes straight out of your account. So, but there is, you know, the bank will look at it again independently and look at that again. But uh, credit card probably a safer option in terms of uh, booking online. Yeah. Okay, so if people need um, any further resources on this or they need to go and get a bit of advice, Keith, where would they go for that? Yes, we have an excellent repository of advice on www.fraudsmart.ie. There's a whole list of uh, tips and um, advice in terms of what to watch out for and also the frauds and scams that are trending, uh, most, uh, most importantly. 
Okay, and if it seems too good to be true, it probably is. Keith Gross from the uh, Payments and Banking Federation, thank you very much for that. It's, yeah, it's 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 one of those times when people are so desperate to get away that they probably will um, fall victims that maybe more readily than they otherwise would have. So if you are if you are looking up holidays, make sure that if it seems too good to be true, bear in mind that it probably is. Going back to drugs, Texter says, no one tells you of the side effects of chemo drugs. I'm left with chemotherapy-induced peripheral neuropathy, which is a 24-7 chronic pain condition affecting joints, muscles and nerves. In my case, it has left me very disabled. Yeah, I'm. that's an awful situation to be in. I know a number of people who've, who've had that and it's um, it's very difficult. Um, but I guess, you know, it's, it's, it's again going back to the COVID thing. We all have to exercise judgment in terms of the um, choices we're making about whether to take treatments or not and things like that. It can be very, very difficult to know uh, what these side effects are going to be. Um, interested in hearing more about that if you want to come back to us on, on, on you know, what was your condition and, and what was your outcome going to be without treatment because I guess it's still better to be here than not here. Um, but... It, who knows? Everybody might might see that differently. Um, eighteen fifty seven one five nine nine six. To finish today, we're going to talk about GA club licenses. There's a licensing procedure for clubs of all different kinds. Um, GA clubs, any club that has dancing, apparently it costs five hundred euro to renew the license. But of course, there's been no dancing happening anywhere for quite a while now. Uh, Senator Regina Doherty will speak to me about that in just a moment. Eighteen fifty seven one five nine nine six. This is Cork's Gold Imro Award-winning talk show. The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. Call us now. 1850 715 On Cork's 96FM. Here's a funny one. It just shows you how drastically a country can change around the laws that make it. The uh, Public uh, Dance Hall Act 1935 still governs licences um for premises where dancing which is open to the public goes on uh, Senator Regina Doherty um, it's it's a little bit anachronistic at this stage is it? Hi how's it going? Hi Regina how are you? Now, we only Glad have two minutes it. but Glad tell me what's your um, what, what what's your plan with regard to the Public Dance Halls Act? Well what I'm trying to advocate is, is that some of my local pubs and I live in a rural part of Mead um, are being badgered to renew their licences both for dancing and for singing and sure we haven't had a dance or a song in a pub since March when they voluntarily closed mm. and like it's not small money do you? it's 500 quid um, and these pubs haven't made a penny since March so all I'm looking for is an extension of the licences that they've already paid for that they haven't been able to use until they get back up and running and I've been criticised in the last couple of days because people think I'm advocating for the fast reopening of pubs and I'm not and we'll go with public health advice and that'll be grand. But we can't be expecting these people who are literally living off their savings or last year's profits that they made mm. to be handing out money that they don't have for a licence that they can't use. Is there a case for looking to repeal that act in any case? I would imagine it's a bit outdated at this stage. Well, actually, do you know what? When I went looking for it the other day, it goes back to 1935. And so it's obviously it's a very antiquated um, act and probably just a source of income at this stage mm. for the Department of Justice. But you're probably right. There's no need, We don't need a licence to sing in a pub. This goes back to the days when you weren't allowed singing poems. Remember years ago when we were young? But anyway, obviously I'm much older than you. But um, all I'm concerned about is that publicans who are living off um, either the COVID payment or their own savings shouldn't be asked to fork out more money for a licence that they can't use in the current environment. Mm, and as you're pointing out, of course, they already have to have alcohol and music licences. How much are they yeah. normally? Well, actually, when you go through the district court fees, 
like one of them is 35 quid, another is 145, one of them is 350, but they all add up. They all add up. And you are right, they're probably all just a way to raise money, which Mm -hmm. shouldn't necessarily be at the expense of rural pubs that only have a few people in them on a weekday and only make their money on a Friday or Saturday. And very few of them probably still dancing in any case. Senator Regina Doherty, thank you very much for that. Um, Yeah, it's an interesting one. There's all those kind of small things that I think are not going to occur until they come up, but it's good to see somebody is paying attention to them. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.